Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast. This, a very special edition of the 605 Super Podcast, a tribute to Mean Gene Okerlund. Of course, the entire world has heard Mean Gene, the legendary wrestling announcer, passed away, and we are going to pay tribute to him here on this very special episode with several guests talking about various points in Gene's career and what he meant to everyone, and of course, what he meant to professional wrestling. And as we kick off this episode, we're going to begin with Miriam Lina from Norton Records. Of course, Norton Records, where the loud sound abounds, put out a record of some of Gene's early rock and roll from when he was first starting out in South Dakota and, of course, Minnesota. So let's go to this right now, a look at Gene before he was mean, but when he was the leader of Gene Carroll and the Shades. I am very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast today Miriam Lina from Norton Records, and we're going to discuss the music career of Gene Okerlund, or a pre-Gene Okerlund music career, maybe I should say. But Miriam, thanks for being here today. Oh, I, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. You know, I say Norton Records, and some of the listeners may say, what's Norton Records? And for those of you wondering, every time you've heard, hello, Lucille, are you a lesbian? That's from Norton Records. <laughs> Whenever you've heard us talk about yeah. Dr. Master Wade Curtis, the wheelchair-bound manager that worked for Nick Goulas, that's Norton Records. Norton Records has been putting out so many <laughs> cool records for so many years. It's one of my favorite record labels. It's one of Scott Cornish's favorite oh, record you. labels. And one of the things you've put out is, in this corner, Gene Carroll and the Shades. And, of course, Gene Carroll is Gene Okerlund. Before he was Mean Gene, he was Gene Carroll. So what can you tell us about this record, and how did you first find out about it? Give us a little bit of the background. Well, Gene Carroll was uh, actually, before he was, the mean Gene Okerlund, as you said, uh, that we speak of and that we hold so highly, and uh, whose passing we all mourn. He was a piano-pumping, rock and rolling crazy man, yes, from <laughs> South Dakota. And in 1959, at the tender age of 16, he did cut an amazing instrumental, just as killer as can be, as wild on vinyl recordings as, uh, as any of the wrestling that he ended up promoting. It was called Red Devil. And, uh, well, there's got to have been a wrestler named the Red Devil <laughs> somewhere in, <laughs> in the league of renown. But, uh, but, yes, he did. He cut a record when he was 16 and then went on a couple of years later to cut another great rock and roll record. And I know his career extended well beyond that, but... Norton is really uh, concerned about the early years of rock and roll. And to us, like uh, a seminal uh, recording artist such as Gene, really putting his mark on the Midwest, you know, the Minnesota, South Dakota, all of those states that you really don't think of as a hub of rock and roll, really were the real founding area of great rock and roll. And, uh, and he brought the sound to the Midwest. He truly did. This period of time that we're talking about, 1959 to 1962, were there a lot of bands coming out of South Dakota and Minnesota? You know, in terms of the bands that did come out, where did Gene Carroll and the Shades lie? Were they early on? Were they after things started getting going? What was the scene like? Uh, they were right at the start. I mean, uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, uh, before the fame of the Trashmen and so on, and all of the incredible amount of groups that came out of the Minneapolis area and the surrounding cities and states, was a label called Gaiety, uh, which had a remarkable stable of stars. I mean, stars, we're talking about local stars. And uh, there were people who were involved with, uh, with rock and roll groups that went on to work with Mean Gene. The, uh, the Red Devil, I should say that, you know, when, when we're talking about being big in South Dakota, 
there were a hundred copies of that record pressed. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I don't know how long it took them to sell them at that time. But, you know, there here's teenagers playing at a dance in, in uh, places like Sioux Falls and so on. Uh, he was from Sisseton. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm not sure. It's Sisseton, South Dakota. Yeah. So, you know, Sioux Falls was the big town, you know, and playing dances in and around there was basically teenage dances. And to make uh, 100 copies of, of a record, to press 100 copies and sell them on the tiny little label that they were on, it was a pretty remarkable feat. So uh, the M&L uh, record label did issue the uh, Great Shades record. And, uh, and then two years later, as I said, on the last label, he issued Is It Ever Gonna Happen? He's a great singer, fantastic piano pounder, and uh, you just feel the energy of a, an individual that was going to make his market days come in some way, and boy, did he ever, in the world of wrestling. And that was pretty typical of bands from the Midwest in that era, right? You would play dances, you would press up records and just hope to sell them and just hope to play another dance the next week. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, his, uh, the drummer who was in The Shades came from a group called Terry Lee and the Poor Boys, and uh, they featured a person who I think that your listenership might be aware of. Yes, Bob Dylan, <laughs> who was traveling under the name of Elton Gunn. We know he's a Minnesota-born gent. And, uh, and we did issue uh, the very earliest uh, recordings of Terry Lee and the Poor Boys on Norton as well on Highway 94. <laughs> a little goof on, uh, on the later release by Bob. But, uh, you, you know, that, that was a, an incredible, uh, incredible location. People don't think about it, but Minnesota, South Dakota, all of them, you know, Nebraska, there's an amazing slew of groups that came out of there. That drummer, John Leppert, who was in the Shades, also went on to be in Myron Lee and the Caddies. And we also issued Myron Lee, Homicide, one of just like the, the most wildest of rock and roll records. And, you know, shortly after is when, when Gene hit again. 62 on that Wausau label, and that was a Wisconsin record label. Norton Records, and if I can mention also, Kicks Magazine has uncovered so many great records throughout the years and led to so many people like myself discovering many great records throughout the years. But how did you first discover this, the fact that Mean Gene Okerlund had this music career when he was younger? Well, we were mining the whole experience of the Midwest. I mean, really, it was the, the Trashman thing that really got us going into that area in the groups that were pre-Trashman. We knew that, uh, you know, rock and roll did not start with the British invasion, <laughs> even though we're nuts about it ourselves. <laughs> but it didn't begin there. It began well earlier and, uh, and uh, with rock and roll. And the American scene was not dead at the time that, 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 that the uh, that Beatles and the Stones were, were happening and the pretty things and, you know, and the animals and, uh, and all of the groups that we love so much. The kinks! Don't forget the kinks! <laughs> we'll never forget the kinks. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, those, uh, you know, the, the early sound of rock and roll was what we were concerned with, with Kits Magazine, which grew into Norton Records. So we really wanted to uncover and reveal the local scenes uh, throughout America so that they weren't forgotten. And it was really through that scene, a person named Jim Oldsberg, who was a historian in that area, brought it to our attention that, hey, you know, we know that your guys are wrestling fans, did you know? And it was such a revelation. We were thrilled, as can be, to be able to issue these. And we were so happy that uh, that, that Gene was really touched by the fact that people were taken for his early stuff. And we really thought the world of it. We really, I mean, in, in ranking uh, Gene Carroll in the world of early rock and roll, we hold him in high esteem. I know we went on to much greater fame uh, later in life, but those early years as a 16-year-old kid, he was blasting through like nobody's business. 
obviously I have the, uh, the single right here and I'm looking at the artwork and there's a picture of a very, very young and, uh, with a full head of hair, mean gene. Okerlund <laughs> here. Uh, I'm curious. What happened to that thing? <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to uh, make any, uh, I'm not going to say anything about that, but let me ask you, you mentioned <laughs> that gene was touched by this. Tell me a little bit about that. What was it like when you got communication with Gene? How did you get the artwork that you ended up using or the photos that you ended up using on the sleeve? Tell me a little bit about the process of putting it together once you discovered the record. Those came directly from Gene. He was very cooperative on it. He couldn't believe that this stuff was happening. And uh, we were so delighted to be able to issue it. In that area, in that whole South Dakota scene, I don't think there was a whole lot of information out in the world at large. And I really, I think the thing with him was that, hey, we got to put our state on the map, you know. <laughs> and he was very, very proud to be part of that scene and, and probably the um, the most famous of the people to come out of the rock and roll scene just because of his association later on with the wonderful world of wrestling. And of course, even in wrestling, you would see him, he played Tutti Fruity. he would sing very, he did yeah. rock and roll hoochie coo with Rick Derringer. I know. He never left music behind. He, yeah, you know, you couldn't keep him away from the rock and roll, <laughs> which is the way that it should be. You know, I mean, uh, wrestling and rock and roll have always gone hand in hand, but it's nice to know that it started at the very top. Miriam, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today. How can the listeners get a copy of this if they'd like to get one? Oh, sure. They can come to NortonRecords.com, and the record is in this corner, Gene, Carol, and the Shades. And uh, they can purchase it there or listen to it there. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for paying attention to the musical career of Gene Carroll in his earliest days, being a piano-pounding maniac from Sisseton, South Dakota. Is it ever gonna happen? Is it ever gonna be? Is it ever gonna happen? Maybe not to me. Gene's brief run as a recording artist, he would end up working in radio and then eventually working for the AWA, which is where wrestling fans first discovered him. I had a chance to talk with wrestling historian George Shire about Gene in the AWA, but also his memories of Gene when he was on the radio in Minnesota as Gene Leader. So let's now go to this conversation, this extensive conversation with George Shire, all about Gene Okerlund 
in the AWA. Here on All-Star Wrestling, let's go to ringside. There is action in progress in the ring, and let's join that match at this time. We continue our look at the life and career of Mean Gene Okerlund right now with the foremost AWA wrestling historian out there, and that is our friend George Shire. George, thank you for being here today. Hey, it's my pleasure. I wish it was under better uh, times, but always glad to talk wrestling. Well, I think we'll have a good time because talking about Gene, it's hard not to smile. It's hard not to have good stories and good memories. And I know your memories of Gene actually go back even before he was a commentator for the AWA. It goes back to when he was a DJ, correct? That is very true, Brian. Uh, Back in the 60s on a local top 40 radio station here in the Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Gene Okerlund was on WDGY AM radio. Of course, we only had AM in those days. But as I said, a top 40 station, and Gene was on the air uh, during a three-hour stint during the weekdays and going under the name of Gene Leader, L-E-A-D-E-R. And I remember him fondly. I, I watched, I listened to both of the local top 40s we had in that era. We had KDWB and we had WDGY and all of the legendary uh, DJs of that era. Boy, I could go on a tangent with those, but Gene was among them. Was he popular? I mean, was the station very popular with the youth? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You, you, ask, um, you ask anyone, you know, I'm 106 years old. Uh, not really, but you know, I was a, I was a kid in the sixties in my, in my teens and the two top 40 stations we had, you know, in those days the the stations, we'd have a, a new station. We had a country music station and then we had the two, uh, top forties and, you know, you're in the middle of the sixties with, uh, the bands, the Beatles and the animals and the Herman's hermits and all these. And, and there was Gene, uh, spinning the records, and you know he had his stick about him in the day, as did all the other great disc jockeys. I mean, that's an era of of radio that I miss dearly, because it's changed so bad, you know, so differently. But yeah, Gene was great. I I did remember him fondly, and you know later on when I had learned that Gene Okerlund was Gene Leader, I said, wow, I never knew that at the time, but it was fun. So let's fast forward a little bit and talk about his entry into the wrestling business. And I guess before we do that, for the listeners out there not aware, talk a little bit about Marty O'Neill, because he is a part of this story, because Gene, of course, replaces Marty on the AWA broadcast. Give the listeners a little bit of an idea of Marty O'Neill's background and how long he had been with the AWA. Well, Marty O'Neill was a local St. Paul native who had a great, in his own way, he was a good athlete, but he wasn't a big guy. He was probably five six or seven at the most. And, but he was a good baseball player. He was a good basketball player and he was into broadcasting. He took care of a lot of different sports. He even broadcast some Minnesota twins games in the early sixties, along with uh, Herb Carneal when the twins came on board, but he was always around the sports scene, but for wrestling in the, in the 1950s, when, all-star wrestling first came to the twin cities market. And we're going back to about 1953, when Marty O'Neill took over as the host, the voice of the wrestling. And it was the NWA territory in those days because Minneapolis didn't become AWA until August of 60. But Marty was, Marty was here and he had that local following. He had also been on the radio as a, 
radio personality. Uh, he had a, a radio show on uh, a local station, uh, WLOL, which was around in the, in the 50s. And so he, he had a lot of on-air experience. But as the host of wrestling, he played 100% the straight man. And the interesting thing is, is that if you look at wrestling, pro wrestling in the 50s versus the 60s and then versus the 70s, etc., you know, each decade, the, the wrestling evolved. And in the 50s, wrestling on TV was still in, uh, shall we say, uh, babyhood, because yeah. TV in general, when you looked at uh, hosts of any television show in the 50s, the announcers and the pitch men, they were, they were very straight-laced, very professional, very... Uh, that even looked kind of like they had no, no animation to them at all. But that was television in general, regardless of who it was on TV. You go back to Arthur Godfrey and Art Linklater and all these guys. And I mean, they weren't the visible characters that they are today that, you know, TV has. So Marty presented wrestling in a way that he would deliver a line to the wrestlers. And in those days with Marty only being about five, six or seven, all the wrestlers towered over him. So there's little Marty O'Neill in the middle. He wore glasses. He was balding, uh, very unassuming, very professional in his delivery. And he would give a line to the wrestlers. He would let them do their thing for the next two minutes. And when they would walk away, Marty would simply say, well, there you have it, fans. Run, don't walk to get your tickets to tonight's card. And we'd go to a commercial. That's the way Marty did it. So Marty was a, a much different character, but when he was on the air all that time for, you know, we're talking from the mid-50s through the mid-70s, wrestling fans had had 20 years of him. And that was wrestling. You accepted it. And so I can tell you that when Gene Okerlund first got on the air, most of the fans went, who is this guy? And we'll get into a little bit why that was asked. But um, the short story as far as Gene coming in to take over for Marty was I want to say up front that Gene Okerlund was extremely charismatic, extremely good on the microphone. He had the pipes. He was great. And aside from all that, there were two times in his career for wrestling that he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And that first time was when in 1973, when Marty O'Neill, who belonged to a broadcasting union, they had went out on strike. Marty was unable to cross the picket line or he chose not to, whichever story you want to believe. But either way, he did not cross the picket line. In those days, as they did into the 70s and the 80s, the promotion would set up a day where they were going to record interviews for all of the various cards, upcoming cards and cities that they were going to be running cards in. And they would do it all within a day. On this particular day, Marty wouldn't come in or couldn't come in. 
Vern's in a dilemma, Vern Gagne, because he's got a show to do. There's where Gene Okerlund came in. He, at that point in his career, was a uh, marketing representative for WTCN-TV, which was the local affiliate that it was an independent station at the time here in the Twin Cities. And they were the uh, station for all-star wrestling. Uh, For those that care, no pun intended, WTCN became K-A-R-E, CARE 11, and it's now uh, ABC station or NBC station here in the Twin Cities. But anyway, Gene was approached by Vern Gagne. Can you do the interviews? We got to get the show run. We got to get these shows out. And Gene came on board and delivered the uh, interviews. Now, in those days, they would tape sometimes three and four weeks in advance. So in that day's time, Gene actually did three or four weeks of television. Marty was back within a short time, but here we got Gene Okerlund still doing some of the interviews. And then eventually Gene was gone and Marty was back at the fold. But it wasn't too long after that. Marty developed some heart problems, had to take time off. Vern again went to Gene and then Marty wasn't able to return at all. And as far as the schedule for broadcasting and Gene Okerlund took over. So Gene was in the right place at the right time to get that position. As far as I know, Gene was not familiar at all with professional wrestling when he first got that opportunity. What do you remember about those early interviews with him? Was he as comfortable as he would later seem on camera doing interviews, the footage that we all see, or was he awkward? How were those early interviews? Well, you know, if you take it from my perspective, first of all, I, as a fan, I will be honest and say I was disappointed when Marty wasn't going to be there. And you have to remember that I had become friends with Marty O'Neill, and I had actually traveled with Marty O'Neill. So Marty, my friend, is not on the air. That was tough as a fan. But Gene Okerlund, I would never say he was he looked afraid or he looked like he was intimidated, but he 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 did evolve because he wasn't the same gene that we later saw within just a couple of years, how he became part of the he became as much the show as did the wrestlers. But he, he was more, uh, I think you could tell that he was learning the ropes, but he felt comfortable behind the mic. I never felt that he was afraid to hold the microphone. So I think in that respect, his past experience, you know, certainly gave him the confidence that I can do this. And as he evolved, and then, you know, the only thing that if he had anybody that didn't like him in the beginning. It was only because he was replacing Marty O'Neill. And I don't care what venue you, you look at, even at work, if you have a boss that is the favorite boss and they're replaced by somebody, or you have your favorite newscaster and someone else comes in, it's always hard to be the one to replace the well-liked person, and no matter how good you may be. And I think that's where, as the fan base changed and evolved and time went on of course then there were those fans that never remembered marty o'neill but it's hard to replace someone and usually it's more fun it's actually better to replace the guy that you didn't like in between 
if you think about it. Because that way you're not directly replacing a legend. And and we, we really did have, Brian, two legends doing all-star wrestling. Marty O'Neill and Gene Okerlund. And wrestling fans always notice change when it comes to their programs because we watch so intently when we watch wrestling. And it was a big change because it was a completely different style than Marty O'Neill. And eventually it would become a much more playful style. But what do you remember about that? In terms of fans accepting Gene, his style was so different than Marty O'Neill's. Did it mesh right away with the wrestling product or did it not? What, what do you think about Gene's style and how different it was than anything you were accustomed to on a wrestling program in Minnesota at that time? Well, you know, it was interesting too, because then after the, in the late sixties and into the seventies, I had the opportunity I took it upon myself to travel to different territories and different cities, and I had the chance to see other announcers as well. So, you know, when I was down in Florida and I'd see Gordon Soley, now there's a legend. I mean, you talk to anybody and Gordon Soley is the, the Holy Braille, right? But when I saw uh, Gordon Soley, I immediately found myself comparing him to our Gene Okerlund. And when I went into, um, I went down to Oklahoma and I saw a guy named Danny Williams who was doing the Mid-South TV for Leroy McGurk. And I I looked at him and I thought, wow, Gene is so much better than this guy. And it wasn't that he was a bad announcer. It wasn't that he was doing anything in particular wrong. It's just that I constantly was comparing him to back home. So with Gene... Once I got past the fact that Marty wasn't coming back and Gene really did, he adapted quickly. One of the things that you have to remember and this for today's wrestling fan who watches and sees these long 20 minute, whatever they do in the ring, they don't have any announcer with them. They're just rattling off their, their spiel. All of this stuff is scripted and it's all, they have to learn it almost word for word. The same with the ringside announcers, you know, today, most of what they're saying is all scripted for them. But in, in the kayfabe era, you know, let's just say pre-1990, the wrestling announcers, the programs for wrestling were so different because they were all the enhancement talent putting over the main event guys on TV. You know, you always knew who was going to win because the, the, the job were always lost. And then the, the, the main event guy would come and he'd be in the interview. They'd have about two minutes to three minutes for the announcer, the host of the program, to introduce the card coming up, the reason for the match. And, then, and now fans, let me, well, let's welcome and they'll bring in whoever the, the wrestler is. And then feed them a line and let the wrestler take it. The difference between Marty and Gene in that respect was again, Marty just fed the line, never showed any real facial expression or reaction to what the heel, and the heels were the interesting ones because they could throw you for a loop with some of the things that they said or did on an interview. And Marty would never react. Where Gene Okerlund, he started very early on to when the wrestler would say something he would raise an eyebrow and kind of look at the camera or he'd kind of put his head down and maybe just shake it a bit. And that became the beginning of Gene Okerlund kind of coming out. And as time went on, he became more 
uh, shall we say, vocal with the wrestler. If you used a guy like um, Jesse Ventura, Gene would say, oh, come on now, Jesse. And then Jesse would go, let me tell you something, mean Gene. By the way, Jesse was the one that gave him the mean Gene name. So anybody that says it was anyone else, because I've heard people say it was Flair and Hogan, it was, it was Jesse. But that was the type of a thing. And Gene would, would respond to uh, Bobby Heenan by saying, well, now, come on, Bobby Heenan, you're telling me. And he would challenge the wrestler. But again, that was all off the cuff. There was no scripts by the wrestlers or Gene Okerlund. So Gene was able to make them feel very comfortable. Greg Gagne said that the nice thing about Gene is that when you went out for your interview, and he said not all the boys were comfortable talking in front of the camera. They, you know, that was not all of them had that gift of gab or, or whatever it is. And Gene was able to just simply say to them, hey, take my lead. We'll get through this. Here's what I'm going to do. And they'll go with it. And so it was all impromptu. You know, I, I kind of refer to it as reality television before reality television came out because there were no scripts. Gene, of course, you bring up Bobby Heenan, you bring up Jesse Ventura. Gene would have good relationships with so many. A lot of it was he was closer to the age of a lot of the wrestlers as opposed to Marty O'Neill, who was a little bit older. What can you tell me about Gene's relationships with the wrestlers or in Bobby Heenan's case, the managers, the wrestling talent? How did Gene get along with everyone? Everyone that I have ever talked to, from Nick Bockwinkle to Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, uh, Ricky Martell, anybody I've ever talked to about Gene Okerlund, they got along with him well. Stan Lane, when he was here as one of the fabulous ones, he said that Gene Okerlund made doing the TV interviews so easy. And they all got along with him well. The other side of it was is that by the time Gene had come on board and then moving into the later 70s and into the 80s, you know, Gene was traveling with the wrestlers and doing more and more of the interviews and the different uh, uh, after match sets that they would do at a particular arena where they would interview the guys after the matches. So Gene was involved more with the guys than previously Marty had been. Marty would tape the interviews for TV and go home. And Gene, on the other hand, Gene could party. Gene was with the boys. He, he would, you know, he'd go out after, afterwards and have a fun time at the bar. And so, yeah, everybody got along with him. He had a very nice personality. And yet, I can tell you that though I didn't have a lot of personal contact with him at all, um, I had mentioned to you, Brian, off air, that when I sat with him at Vern Gagne's memorial service, Gene was very congenial. He was uh, very down to earth. You didn't have you didn't have the feeling when you're sitting next to him that you know I mean Gene, so I'm better than you. He didn't have that aura about him at all. He was there, and he was just like everybody else. And those are the people that all of us want to be around. You know, we don't want to be around somebody whose head's up in the clouds because they make more money or they, they have a bigger title or whatever it may be. Um, we want to know down-to-earth people. From my perspective, I think that was Gene Okerlund. I think he could 
he could he didn't judge people based on their appearance or or anything. I never got that from him. Of course, before he would receive national prominence, he was the Twin Cities Gene Okerlund. What was his popularity like? We hear lots of things that Mean Gene was as popular as some of the wrestlers. As we go from the 70s into the early 80s, how popular was Gene Okerlund in the Twin Cities? He was extremely popular. He, he, you know, if you mentioned Hulk Hogan, Gene Okerlund was as well-known. If you mentioned Nick Bockwinkel, Gene was, you know, equally well-known. And because wrestling was experiencing such a boom in the early 80s, the AWA had its two most profitable years. But let's point out that wrestling as a whole, if you looked at it around the country and all the various promotions, wrestling was in one of those big booms where for whatever reason, attendance was up and, and the, the characters that were in the business were just drawing the fans in and it was drawing in a younger fan base. So I think that had a lot to do with it. I mean, again, I think Gene was, um, was probably the reason you turned on to wrestling because he was, he was good at what he did. And then you'd have the wrestlers who would at times try to intimidate Gene and he would just shake his head and say, Oh, come on now. You're not going to do that. If you go on YouTube, there's a lot of videos out there. Gene is just good. He's just good. What was Gene's relationship like with the Ganyas? He had a good relationship. And I, I can tell you this. Vern had the utmost respect. So did Greg. And Greg still does. I've talked with Greg about this in just the last couple of days. They had a great relationship with him. I had somebody ask me yesterday. They said, uh, how did Vern feel about the character that Gene Okerlund had become because he had become as much a character as the personalities that were, you know, wrestling. And I said, you know, the thing is, and Greg confirmed this, there was never any mind with what Gene did because it was drawing money. And that's the bottom line in anything. As long as the fans are buying into his shtick, there's no reason to say, hey, you got to cut the comedy act or you got to cut the you know, whatever it is you're doing. So Vern was okay with it. And Vern treated him well. Vern had no issues with him. There was some tension and some resentment, more disappointment probably, better said, when Gene jumped to the WWF. And what, what fans don't understand or didn't at the time was that when Vince McMahon started his national expansion plans, he recognized that Hulk Hogan was the poster child. He needed to make the business the way he felt going be successful. And again, Hogan at that point was in the right place at the right time. Vern Gagne, the AWA had really made Hulkamania and no one should ever deny that because there was no Hulk Hogan before Vern Gagne you know, molded him into that character. And when Vince McMahon wanted Hogan, Hogan told McMahon that he wanted Gene Okerlund or that he should get Gene Okerlund to go with him because, and the primary reason was, is that Hogan and Gene had become friends. And it was Gene that brought out a lot of the Hogan character 
as Hogan, you know, he came into the AWA initially as a heel, or he was meant to be a heel. He had luscious Johnny Valiant as his mouthpiece because, and again, there's some of that on YouTube for folks that want to look at it. Uh, Hogan was very, very timid or shy on the mic when he first came in. So luscious Johnny was doing his mouth, his uh, talking. Now you've seen afterwards that the fans were actually cheering Hogan. So Vern dumped Valiant. He was gone and Hogan became the baby face and started to, you know, bring that character out. And that was all done through Vern and other wrestlers that were coaxing him. Bobby Heenan was a lot instrumental in that, in, in working with Hogan to become the boisterous and, you know, just the personality that we saw. So when Vince wanted Hogan, it was Hogan that said, you know, I'd like to have Gene because I play off of him well, and Gene would be good in the position that you're looking to do. So Gene took it. And, you know, who faults, you know, the guy was offered more money. He was offered a contract. I mean, let's face it. We can all criticize it. We can all be bitter about it. But I've been in the, I was in the banking business for 30 years. And I know that's the way the business works. You go where the money is. So the bottom line was Gene went with him. And that's where it took Vern by, by uh, surprise because Vern obviously felt that he had probably been betrayed by both Gene and Hogan to a degree because he made Hogan and he obviously was the one that started Gene. And then the other side of it was, is that they had uh, about four or five weeks of wrestling tapes in the, in the can waiting, you know, to be aired out. And here's Gene jumping to the WWF. We had a very strange situation here when that broke in 84 because we had WWF coming on our television station previously that had been where our all-star wrestling was on WTCN because our own wrestling had moved over to another station a few years earlier. Here we got Gene Okerlund announcing that he's in the WWF, the Big Apple, and the real world champion with Hulk Hogan, and then you could turn on All-Star Wrestling for a few weeks there, and here's Gene Okerlund on the AWA because they were pre-taped still hyping a show or something coming up. So that was a point of resentment. Over time, I think Vern probably got over it. I can't speak for him. He's passed now, but Greg said he never had a problem other than that, you know, Gene left sort of on that not really giving us any notice type situation. And then the other small tidbit was Hogan also wanted Dr. D. David Schultz to come with him to the WWF because Hogan was in the middle of a really hot program with Schultz here in the AWA. And I'm telling you, they were, they were decent matches. I put more emphasis on, on, Schultz being the success for the feud, because he was good, in my opinion, on the mic and very much in the ring. But that's just my opinion. But nonetheless, they were a hot ticket. And so Hogan, he got his way. All three of them left. The AWA was left with the strange situation of having Ken Resnick. And I want to tell you about Ken Resnick. Now, he replaced Gene Okerlund. If I ever felt sorry for somebody... It was Ken Resnick. Goes back to what I said earlier. It's tough 
when you're replacing the legend, because no matter how good you may be, you're not as good as that other person in the fans' eyes. Certainly to replace Gene, Ken Resnick had, the poor man, I thought he'd, he looked in the beginning like he may have been a little afraid behind the microphone, but Ken Resnick eventually, I think, did a very nice job for the AWA, and I appreciated his work. I've become friends with him through the years, and him and I have talked about this. I think he did a great job, but I don't think he was judged fairly in the beginning because he replaced Gene, and fans really didn't accept that. So for a while, uh, Ken Resnick had to deal with that stigma. But I thought he, he, he became decent, very, very decent. I had always heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the loss of Gene Okerlund was as impactful as the loss of Hogan to the AWA fans. Well, I think it was. You have to understand, Brian, and, and folks listening, that for, for about a, a six-month period in 1984, number one, we lost Hogan. And yes, the AWA knew that he wasn't going to appear and, and those matches were already out. They had to make some adjustments to their cards. That was a disappointment. They brought the crusher out of semi-retirement, which was a good move. But at that point in time, the newer fan base, uh, by that standard, the crusher looked old. And, and he was. He was 55 years old at the time. But he could still draw the fans because of his reputation and name. So that was a good thing. But you also had, at that same time when Hogan left, all they announced was that Hogan did not appear. And they were fairly upfront about it, that he said he wasn't going to fulfill his commitments. At the same time, Dr. D. David Schultz was gone. And with Schultz, they came out and stated that he had been suspended due to his ring actions, which made sense to fans at the time because Schultz was, you know, he was killing the place with how he was, you know, Hogan's enemy and him and Saito were together as a team against Hogan. And so it made sense. Like he's finally, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel back, camel's back and, and Schultz is eliminated. But then you have no mean gene. There was never any explanation for that. The problem was, is that when you turned on the other rival station, here you've got Gene Okerlund. And then when you looked at the WWF, you know what they did during that first couple months? The WWF came to the Met Sports Center here in the Twin Cities, and they had on the card for their main event, Hogan versus Schultz. Now, fans are like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden they see Jesse Ventura on WWF because he left. Then you saw, eventually you saw Jim Brunzel, who was hooked up with uh, Brian Blair. And then you saw Bobby Heenan. And at that point in time, the fans, even though I was enjoying it from, in a strange kind of way, because I was getting to see some great wrestling cards, the AWA, I will point out, had still a good year up to 1985-86. 87 was when the gas tank was starting to empty and things got crappy going forward. But up until about 86, when the two promotions were running head-to-head -head in Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, Vern was still outdrawing the WWE. But then it just started to 
you know, by that time, Vern was losing more talent on a regular basis. And it was sad. I mean, even Mad Dog. Now, to their credit, let's point out something. When Vern was disappointed that Gene and Hogan left and Schultz left, Mad Dog Vashon had gotten an invitation from Vince. Here's Mad Dog Vashon, who's in his mid-50s. Obviously, he's in the real twilight of his career, even though he was extremely over as a babyface, a heel wrestling as a babyface. He went to Vern Gagne the night he was on a card. He was supposed to wrestle Bruiser. Well, he was King Kong Brody here. Mad Dog was supposed to wrestle King Kong Brody. And right before the match, Dog went to Vern and he said, I want you to know that Vince has approached me. He's going to pay me a lot more than I can get here. And I'm really, I'm at the end here. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to go to the, I'll, I'll go out and I'll wrestle Brody and I'll go. This is something I always admired. To his credit, Vern Gagne pulled Mad Dog off that card. We were in the auditorium when this happened. And Vern kept the dog in the back. He brought a substitute out to wrestle against Brody. Now, here's a credit to Vern Gagne. Vern could have been pissed as hell, and he could have said, you know, I'm going to have Brody go out there and take this guy apart. You know what I mean? But he didn't. And Dog and him had a good relationship, and so Mad Dog was not there. He went, and next thing you know, in the following week, here's Mad Dog in the WWF. Now, in those days, in that moment, the only reason that Vince wanted Mad Dog, because that made his, when he came to an AWA city, which he was, you know, coming into, it made it that much more. There were times for about a year where every WWF card looked more like an AWA card than the AWA cards did because we were starting to bring in new talent, guys like the Road Warriors and the Fabulous Ones and, and, and uh, different guys. And then you've got this other station has all your stars on it. And that's the reason it was done. Uh, in those early days, Vince was doing that. He was using these guys just to draw fans. And Gene helped because Gene was there. Vince went after every promotion, but it seemed like he really went after Vern and the AWA more than everyone else. I mean, you talked about some of the people he rated. He rated production guys. He rated Al Darusha. He rated everyone oh, yeah. he could get. Anyone who became a commentator on Vern's show was pretty much assured they were going to get a six-figure offer from Vince the next month or so. But in terms well, of... Well, and as time went on, and this is why the AWA, you know, and Greg and I have talked about this many times. It wasn't a matter of that you didn't still promote wrestling in a good way. It wasn't a matter of you weren't putting together good cards. It was a matter of every time you put a guy on the card, you had to worry about him no-showing. And Vince was, you know, his pockets seemed to have no end to uh, how deep they were. And like you said, uh, bonafide contracts. And if he could... You know, he hired away, if you look at the AWA, he hired away eventually the Crusher, only to only to appear in Milwaukee and, you know, a couple of other places just because that's where the Crusher was huge. He took away the dog. He took away Ventura. He took away Bobby Heenan. Another thing, stop for a moment. Bobby Heenan, he did go to Vern, and he told him he's going to go to Bob. He's going to go to Vince, that Vince has offered him all this money. He basically told Vern, if you can match it or if you can make me stay, I'll stay. But 
I, I don't want to pass this up. And Bobby left. He actually fulfilled all of his commitments before he left around the horn, you know, a couple, three weeks worth of matches, Bobby finished them out and then he went. So to that credit, Bobby did it the right way. And that was one of the things that Greg told Hogan when he gave his notice, said he wasn't coming in. Greg told him, he said, you know, we've already got all these matches signed. You'll come in here, fulfill your commitments and then go. And Hogan told him, Vince is paying me not to appear. What are you going to do? So, I mean, however you want to look at the, the national expansion, Vern struggled for those reasons. And as time went on, the business took its toll on him. And, you know, but I never, I guess in the beginning I did, Brian, but I don't anymore. I don't fault Vince McMahon. He did what anyone else would have done had the opportunity, you know, been there. And his main good point was that he had his youth on his side and he had big, deep pockets. He could promise the guys legitimate contracts and the rest is history. When we talk about those early WWF shows in the Twin Cities, I think of two shows. I think of the one with Hogan versus David Schultz. And I think of the one with Hulk Hogan teaming with Mean Gene against, I believe, Mr. Fuji and George the Animal Steel. That was a big deal, having Gene Okerlund wrestle in the main event. I've seen footage. The crowd was going crazy. What do you remember about that? Well, and you know, it was interesting because at the time, again, because I, being an AWA for lifer, let's say, I was very disappointed after I seen all this stuff happening with the WWF. And when that particular match came about, at the time, I thought, oh, brother, this is just getting to be a circus. But I want to say this. In being fair, you know, a lot of times fans will criticize Vince's product. And I admit today it's gotten probably as crazy as it's ever been. But if you're fair and you go back and you look at the kayfabe era, you can look at promotions around the country that ran strange matches where the announcer would be in a match or somebody would be challenged to some goof. I I remember one match down in Texas. Paul Bosch, who was the promoter in Houston, and Paul had been a great wrestler in his own day, but now he's the promoter, and he's beyond wrestling age. He got into a an on-air storyline with tough Tony Bourne, and Tony Bourne challenged him, always called him Mr. Promoter, and challenged him, and Bosch, you know, they played the story up. He's, I'm, I'm, I'm a promoter, I'm not a wrestler. But finally, Bosch says, you know what, I've had enough of this. So they put Paul Bosch, or Paul put himself into a match with uh, Tony Bourne where the loser would ride a donkey. Okay, now, when you think about, that looks like something that Vince McMahon would come up with today, some silly stunt like that. Well, you knew, you knew Bourne was going to lose. They also had a match where the loser would be tar and feathered down in, in Texas, and they I don't know what, if it was some kind of a syrup or something, and then they threw feathers on him, the loser. And so, I mean, wrestling always had this kind of comical aura about it at different times. It was all about what drew money. But eventually, you know, wrestling still was always presented as a legitimate sport. And every announcer, every wrestler would tell you that everything we did was real. 
So when Vince starts coming off with having Uncle Elmer getting married on TV and they're having pie throwing contests behind the scenes and, and, uh, you know, all this different stuff that he was doing in the beginning, it was definitely at that point far different than what most fans had been uh, subjected to because if and when another promotion did it, it was so far and few between that it was strictly a novelty and then it was forgotten about. And Vince was doing it on a regular basis when he started the rock and wrestling connection and everything. And there was a definite line between the types of promotions. You know, all the other promotions were still doing it straight and Vince was doing it as a vaudeville act. And that was the difference. It does say something, though, that he would go into the Twin Cities where it is open wrestling war between the AWA and the WWF, and he would put Gene in the main event. That says a lot about the value of Gene. Yep, and how that came about was that on the WWF part of it, Hogan was told that he had to have a partner if he wanted to go against Fuji and Steel. Well, he didn't want a partner. I can take him on by myself. You know, that was Hogan's stick even when he was in the AWA that uh, release the chains that are binding me here. Let, let, me, let me take care of these guys. Well, so what does he do? Well, I'll fix you. I'm going to get a partner. I'm just going to take Mean Gene. And everybody goes, oh, my gosh, Mean Gene, are you out of your mind? He's not a wrestler. Well, if you look on YouTube, there's a couple of vignettes that have Hogan training Mean Gene, giving him an egg. I think he uh, gives them some type of an egg uh, dicing diet or something, and they're jogging. And he, he takes him up and down the stairs at an arena. He's supposedly getting Gene into shape. When you watch the actual match, Gene didn't do anything in the match to speak of. You know, he might go in and give a stop when uh, things were clear, but Hogan did all the work. And then at the very end, after Hogan had cleaned house on Fuji and Steel, Gene uh, was tagged in and Gene fell on Fuji and pinned him. It was all for novelty purposes. But the fans went away talking and happy, and I don't care what you say, that's where it counts because it went over, and that's what it's about. Well, let's fast forward to the present day. I mentioned earlier Mean Gene, of course, would go on to have such national prominence. But with the news of his passing, how has it been covered in the Twin Cities, where he first started at, where you guys first discovered Mean Gene? How is it being played in the local press? In the local press, I'm kind of surprised that it's been as well as it has. And I only say that because a month or so back, we lost Larry the Axe Hennig. And though he did get some brief mention, as big a star as he was locally, it is nothing compared to what Mean Gene has gotten. Yesterday, I received a call almost immediately upon his death. In fact, Greg called me and asked me if I'd heard about it. But I got a call from two radio stations locally here right away if I would go on with them. I did. Jim Brunzel was on both of these stations, as well as all three network stations in the Twin Cities, as well as Greg Gagne, Jesse Ventura was on, Al Darusha was on. Everyone has had mention, and they've had it on all the newscasts yesterday on all the local newscasts, it was not the lead-off story, obviously, but it was a definitely a part. And all did a very good job of giving a short bio-tribute to Gene and his career. So I think he's gotten a really, really great send-off from the local media. Greg Gagne, 
was very positive when he talked about him last night. Greg Gagne works at a local car dealership. And uh, Channel 4 went to the dealership and actually interviewed Greg. They aired that. They went to Jim Brunzel's home. This was um, Channel 9, our Fox network here. They went to Jim Brunzel's home, had a segment with him. Jesse Ventura was on the phone. They showed him or, you know, had him talking. So he definitely has gotten a good send-off. And it's all been positive, Brian. I mean, you know, the way I look at it, when someone passes, if you're just going to, I mean, unless the guy was a, a notorious killer or something, I mean, just the scum of the earth, when, when they pass, I mean, let's face it, I'm sure Gene, I'm sure Larry Hennig, I'm sure every wrestler we've ever talked about, they're not angels. But the bottom line is you remember them, you put them off in the good vein and and what they did and send them off. May they rest in peace and thank them for what they gave us. Fans, in a moment, I'm going to be talking to the former world's heavyweight champion and his manager, Steve Regal, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the newest edition of the A. And Steve, I don't mind telling you, I don't believe I've ever seen that combination on you before with the lavender suspenders, if you will. Well, eat your heart out, Oakland. You love these, don't you? These are custom made for me, you know that? Down in Fort Lauderdale? Yeah, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I'm from, where, where, where the best people hang out and where that's where I'm from. Everybody does things a little bit better from Fort Lauderdale. A little bit different, too, Steve, I don't mind telling you. Well, hey, you know, I've got something a little different, too. I've got a hold I have perfected and developed to the utmost to perfection. I put it on somebody. It's legal. It's scientific. When I put it on somebody, it can cripple a guy like that. You'd better tell us exactly what it is. Be specific, Steve. What kind of a hold is it? You'd love to know, wouldn't you? Well, of course, I can't imagine why he even brought that up when he wouldn't tell us about it. Former world champ Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan, here on California soil again, gentlemen. Yes, our homeland. Now, you know, I heard Tito Santana out here a little bit earlier saying he's thinking of making the Bay Area his home. Now, that's a little bit of, of euphemistic. Well, that property value would go down. Oh, wouldn't it? Oh, gentlemen, now, please. Now, if, if he feels he's got to say something like that to win the hearts of you humanoids, you simpletons, that's okay. That's understandable. Now, I have no desire to impress you at all. Mr. Heenan has no desire to impress you. We could care less about impressing anyone. All we want is Vern Gagne, the former world's heavyweight champion. I say former because I'm thinking positive and I'm thinking into the future. This man stole the title from me in Chicago. And I only want all the wrestling fans throughout the world to put the pressure on him to step back into the ring to give me a return match because the championship is really mine. The only person I want to impress is myself and Mr. Heenan, and we're going to do it in our style. Bobby Heenan, that is a very good-looking sport coat you've got on. Yeah, and I paid for mine. Mine is in government issue. Oh, Go ahead, interview me now. That's your job out here. Bobby People Heenan. like to know a little bit about me. Yes, You're the kind of a guy that just keeps talking, don't want anybody else to get a word in. Now, interview me while I can get my interview done here. I like And to don't do waste any time uh, talking about other little things that are trivial. Talk to me right now. Go ahead. Come on. Bobby. You know, I got a lot to say. I mean, it's not the kind of a guy that stands around here. You bring Vern Gagne out here, the world's heavyweight champ. You bring whoever else you want out here, and I'm going to put this man right against him. They talk about how bad Bockwinkle wants the belt, how he walks his rooms at night, how he, he stays by the phone waiting for someone to call, waiting for Vern Gagne to break a hip or something, how he drives by where Vern Gagne stays in the motel in the house and rolls the windows down, and he's yelling, trying to sucker him out of the motel room, how he, he polishes an old belt he's got at home, how he cries day and night. Wrong. Not day and night. Not week and week out. He's a champion. He don't have to do that stuff. Are you done yet? No, I'm not done. Keep going. We're out of time. I'm out of sorry time. to say you better believe it. What do you think? I'm standing We're going to be right help? back with more action. Boy, you rude. 
one of the many wrestlers that Gene Okerlund would interview in the AWA and then again later in the WWF was Dr. D, David Schultz. And of course, some of these promos have gone viral. People see Gene losing it when David Schultz says something. Although David is very serious, Gene can't hold back his laughter and has to turn away from the camera. And David Schultz just continues on with what he was saying. I had an opportunity to talk with Dr. D, David Schultz, a little bit about Gene. And let's go to this recording right now. Dave, the redneck Schultz, as the fans call you, you see something like this happen, it's got to be upsetting to you. It don't upset me at all, baby. Let me tell you, I think it's great. You know what I mean? If you're going to go on the hunt, you got to be able to run with the big boys. If he can't run with the big boys, he said, get out. He shouldn't come out here. Last time I was in San Francisco, I went downtown looking for a woman. You know what I mean? I wanted a woman. I couldn't find a woman. I found a lot of men that look like women. Now you, Hulk Hogan, you belong in San Francisco. What's wrong with you, Gene? I'm telling you like it is, baby. You belong in San Francisco. That's your kind of place. That's your kind of people because you've never had a woman, baby. And now I'm challenging you. I'm challenging you. As we look at the life and career of Mean Gene Okerlund today on the Super Podcast, I am very happy to welcome back to the show Dr. D, David Schultz. And, Doctor, thank you for being here once again. Yes, sir. It's an honor to be there with you. You're a good guy. You do a great podcast. And when I heard yesterday Mean Gene had passed on, I mean, I've been really upset. I don't get really upset over many people, but this was a good guy. He was a good guy from the first day I met him in Minnesota. Uh, Hulk Hogan and myself and Mean Gene uh, came down to do Alan uh, Allentown TV for Vince uh, in 83, I believe it was, 82, 83, or 84. 84. And, uh, you know, Gene, when I first met him up in uh, Minnesota with Vern Gagne, AWA, what a nice guy, man. This guy could uh, carry on. Uh, he could keep you going on an interview. He could feed you information. He made it so easy. And, you know, this guy, I never heard him say anything bad about anybody. I mean, especially in front of anybody. I mean, you know, most people talk bad about people behind their back, but I never heard him say anything bad, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to me, I say a lot of things bad about people, you know. But, you know, Gene was a good guy, and he he took care of business. And I seen him in February or March in New Jersey at an autograph uh, convention, wrestling convention. And first time I'd seen him since the Stossel incident. And he kind of hugged my neck, and he said, Dr. D, man, you was the greatest interview there ever was. And I'm going to tell you, Vince McMahon really screwed you over what he did to you. It was wrong. It was so wrong. But, you know, I said, yeah, what can you do? I mean, you know, you can't do nothing about it. Nobody can speak up and say anything. You just have to take it, keep your mouth shut and keep going, you know. But uh, Gene Oakland is one of a kind, man. He was a good guy. Like I said, it's hard. You know, it hurts when you see people like that go. He's such a nice guy. And it's such a good guy, especially for the wrestling business, man. He was great. I mean, he was part of it. And uh, without him, you know, I, I mean, I've been in a lot of interviews where you could not keep going. Gene would keep you going. He would he would uh, just feed you information. And that's one of the big thing on interviews, have somebody to feed you information where you can keep coming back with him, coming back, coming back on him, you know. 
And uh, but Gene was always on time, always there. I never seen him out of out of character or mad or upset or anything. If he was mad or upset, he didn't show it. But uh, it was a uh, it was really a blow to me to hear that. You know, we've lost so many, so many guys the last few years. And um, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, well, they need to get ready. <laughs> Our numbers are coming up, you know. And uh, he said, well, yeah, well, I mean, hey, it's got to do. You know, you can't, you can't hide from it. it it's going to happen. So just get ready for it. And <laughs> he said, well, you got a great outlook. I said, hey, <laughs> I, I, what do you want me to tell you? I mean, I don't know anybody that dodged it yet, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's just a matter of how you lived and what you got to do. When you meet your maker, hey, all this is going to come out, you know. And uh, like I told you, I was talking to you a while ago, you know, this is probably for these, all the rich guys, you know, make fortune in wrestling and everything. And uh, the main one I'm talking to is Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon Jr., like God said, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the gates of heaven. So he needs to start getting rid of that money. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> some of the millions that he owes me. But uh, that ain't going to happen, you know. But, you know, it's just, you know, I don't even want to talk about that piece of garbage today on the day. I mean, you know, we're paying respect for, uh, you know, Gene. And uh, let's actually go back to the beginning. You you mentioned, you know, you first met Gene when you went to the AWA. By the time you had gotten there, you had been in so many places. You had been in Calgary, of course, all over the southeast, Memphis, everywhere you could think of, you had already been. And that, of course, means you have encountered so many different commentators and announcers and people holding the microphone while you have to do your local promos. What was it like when you first met Gene? Did he immediately stand out as being different than all the rest? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Immediately. You know, I mean, you know, I'd, we'd be doing TV and we uh, listen to the other interviews with the other guys. And I said, man, this guy's got his thing together. And when I went up there and he said, Dr. D, OK, here, here you're going against this guy. Blah, 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 blah. This here, this here. Well, doctor, this guy's got a record. Blah, blah, you know, I mean, oh, it was great. I mean, he could do the interview. You didn't have to say nothing. He could get it over. But he could feed you. Now, like I've been to so many people, like you said, I've been all over. And some of these interviews, you come out and they say, well, Dr. D, you're a wrestling main event tonight against uh, Hulk Hogan. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I don't have no thoughts. I mean, you know, this guy's a, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'd stop. And I said, well, is this guy going to come back on me? <laughs> He's sitting there talking to me and he gets all memorized about me talking and he forgets he's doing an interview. And I mean, Gene didn't do that. Gene stayed with the program, man. He carried you all the way through. He would walk right off with me sometime. I'd be talking and he'd be hitting my leg, telling me time's up and all this. And, you know, hey, don't walk off me. Get your tail back. Get over here, boy. Don't you need, oh, that's it, doctor. I gotta go. This man, you know, other guys would freak out because they didn't understand that it was a work. And Gene got it over as it was a shoot all the time, you know, that, I mean, Gene was good, man. He was good. He was so easy to do interviews. You know, when we did TV, you know, we did TV for three or four weeks in a row, one night, you know. I mean, we do interviews for hours on end, you know. Oh, this here is for this town. This is for this town. This is for this town. And Gene would be on every one of them. And he, oh, he could just... He had everything down. You really didn't have to worry about anything. I don't think I ever seen him make a mistake. 
or starting over or something. If he did make a mistake, he covered it up, you know. But uh, what a nice guy. And you hate to see these people, uh, you know, the end come for them because they're so good for the business, the wrestling business, ever any kind of business with a person this intelligent to have to go. But we all got to go. I'm just, uh, I hope he didn't suffer. And uh, I, I just... Uh, you know, it's hard to put words in, but a good guy like that, at least there's nothing bad said about him. I mean, they're making up a list now to talk about me when I'm gone. I mean, <laughs> they're making up a bad list. You know? <laughs> Most of them be fake news, though, because I'm a pretty good guy if you get to know me, you know. But Gene, is a he was a super nice. He's one of a kind, man. In this business, he'll always be remembered, always. Now, nobody will forget Mean Gene Oakland. You talk about how he made it easy for you, and of course Gene made it easy for so many wrestlers out there, whether it was their first promo or whether they were a seasoned veteran, but you didn't always make it easy for him. And there are a few occasions, and I know that you know these are very popular on YouTube and people pass them around, where you crack Gene, where Gene's interviewing you, and you say something, and you're still so serious, but he can't hold back. The camera will zoom in on your face, and Gene will turn away. Do you remember those incidents when they happened? Do you remember popping him in the middle of those promos? Yeah, I, we had a lot of them like that. Uh, one of them was especially about San Francisco, about me looking for a woman. They didn't have no women in San Francisco in this area. And then Gene was just cracking up. And I said, well, I've looked all over the place for a fight. And then I looked for a woman. I couldn't find either one there in San Francisco. You can find people look like a woman, but they ain't a woman. And it's all oh, Gene just got me, you know, however it went, you know. But he just, uh, because all my inter interviews were ad lib, never wrote down, never planned. You know, everything would walk out and do it, you know. And I just, uh, he was, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he liked, uh, he, he liked to interview me. He told me, he said, you one of the best there ever was, man. And I said, I appreciate that. That was, that meant a lot to me. Uh, you know, when I met him in February, March, and like I said, it had been 30 years, 35 years since I'd seen him. But, uh, you know, it's just, um, he, he, I mean, it's just hard to tell people what a easy, uh, Hogan, Hogan goes out. Hogan goes out with, he fed Hogan great. You know, he, I mean, without that, when Hogan up in Minnesota, he was lost half the time and Gene was pulling through and, um, they become good friends. I got, I know in the book, don't call me fake. There's a picture in there of Gene Oakland's house. We was having a big get together, a party. And I'm the one that took the picture. Reason I ain't in it, but my wife's in there. My daughter's in there. Hogan, his wife and mean Gene, his wife, everybody, you know, it's a big group picture in the book, you know, and by the way, the book won iHeartRadio uh, Book of the Year. You know, you bring up that picture in your book of the party at the house. And I'm curious, yeah. when you get to the AWA, it always seemed like Gene was almost one of the boys as opposed to being just an announcer. Did he party with the boys often? Was he often around you guys? I would, well, just at the arenas all. I never, I never, that's one thing I never did. I never partied too much with the boys or whatever, you know. I was a, what you call, homebody. I'd get through, I'd go out the back door, I'd get in my car and go. And, you know, even when I was on the road at hotels, I'd stay at different hotels most of the time than where the other wrestlers stayed because I didn't want to be bothered. I didn't want all the rumors. I didn't want all the drugs that was running around getting near me. I didn't want nothing to do with it. So I, I never, uh, never really, I mean, around the dressing room, he was great, always uh, laughing, having a good time, whatever, you know. But far as after the matches, I was never 
nibble with them, you know, and they're hanging out doing anything. You brought up earlier how you and Hogan and Gene all went to the World Wrestling Federation together. And of course, that was almost a death shot to the AWA because you had the top babyface, yes. the top heel, and the main yes. announcer on the program who had a big following in the Twin Cities. Do you remember yes. that? Did you guys ever talk about it when you made that move together, you and Gene? Did you ever talk about what he was thinking or why he decided to well, do Well, you know, the one that, that set it up was Vince and Hogan. Hogan went, uh, Hogan went first. And then we had another month. Hogan said, okay, keep doing the interviews there. And Vince called me, keep working like you're working. But I'd go in and Hogan and myself was main event in all these cities that AWA went to. And, you know, we both bleeding like stuck hogs in most of the towns. And then I went in doing interviews saying, Hogan, if you show up, you're not going to show up. You're a coward. And nobody knew Hogan was gone, see. I did, that he was going to be gone during those interviews because that was two weeks off when you made the interviews. And uh, I did that, uh, you know, in Canada, uh, several towns running Canada. Las Vegas, Minnesota, different place. You know, I said, if you show up and if I don't beat you, I will never wrestle again. I will burn my tights in the middle of the ring. I'm going to beat you one, two, three. Burn come out and say, oh, my God, Dave, what are you talking about? Yeah, I ain't the one. I said, hey, don't worry. I'll take care of it. Burn didn't even know. And see, when I was talking that about all these towns that we had blood baths in a month ago, and then Vince McMahon went in those towns six months later, and all that six months, I was working up to get to Hogan in New York. I'd already been there. You know, I went up about a month after him. And Vern Gagne, you know, I told him I was leaving. He said, he said I'll get out of the TV station. I said, well, uh, he, he said, before I throw you out. And I was just happy he didn't throw me out or try to throw me out. Because I'm sure he could have thrown me out. And I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> Vern was a tough character, you know. But after that. I went to Vince and everything we started working for is Hogan, for me and Hogan, me and Hogan. And we went in every one of those towns that Byrne ran, Hogan and myself. And he come back to all the interviews that we did about that and everything. I mean, it was a classic takeover. Vince McMahon knew what he was doing, setting that up. Hogan done told him, hey, Schultz is the one, we can do this. They used me to get him over those towns more, you know, because once we went in there, and then I started going going down a little bit. You know, Ben said, oh, don't worry, we'll get you by another lie, you know. And uh, that was just, uh, uh, I, I guess, Vince, uh, he told me one day that he wasn't scared of me, and I told him, you should be scared of me. You should be very scared of me. I was going to put somebody's head in a commode or something. <laughs> I think it, I think it was I think it was uh, Pat Patterson's boyfriend, uh, whatever. I, I forget his name. Uh, what's his name? Louie? Louis, I don't know which one it was now, but anyway, I was working when he come in crying, whining, I was too tough on him, and I was going to take him back. Lombardi. Lombardi. Oh, Steve Lombardi. Yeah. And I was going to put his head in the commode, and Vince come running back. I said, Leave that guy alone. Show up back off. Get off of him. I said, I'm going to teach him a lesson here. And Vince said, Hey, you got all these guys scared of you. I'm not scared of you. I said, Well, you should be. You should be more scared of me than anybody, <laughs> you know. Anyway, he walked off, I walked off, and from that day on, I started, you know, I wasn't favored by him. He didn't like to be around me. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny, but anyway. You bring up a big point there, though, that he gets the AWA's top babyface, he gets the AWA's top heel, and then he goes into the Twin Cities and he runs with you against Hogan in the main event. 
How big a part of the story do you think Gene was? How big do you think it was that Gene went with you guys? It's easy to see, okay, top babyface and top heel. Those are the two top guys you would go after. But to get Gene Okerlund, how important do you think that was? Yeah, that was very important. That was very important because uh, just because Hogan and myself. But after that, Gene, everybody started coming over, Bobby Heaney and everybody. You know, they just, I mean, Gene was part of AWA wrestling, just like he was WWF. And it's like moving the whole organization. When you seen Gene Oakland, oh, here's a, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very important. And he knew it, too. And I guess the money he was offered, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it, too. Because Vince had a way of offering big bucks. And uh, uh, I never seen none of it. But <laughs> uh, but anyway, I guess Linda had to have that to run for a Senate up in Connecticut. <laughs> you know, uh, anyway, you know, Gene was a big part of it, man. I mean... I, I believe Ken Resnick, I believe was his name, was one of the announcers there at that time, right? He replaced Gene in the AWA after Gene left. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, and, I mean, Ken was a good guy. Don't get me wrong. He wasn't no Gene Oakland, though. I mean, you know, Gene just had that, uh, he had the voice. You didn't even have to see him. The voice, he could get it over, you know, just his voice and the way, the way he addressed everything. Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, that's the reason Vince got him because Vince seen it too, and uh, Vern Gagne seen it, and that's the reason Vern got him. And uh, I read where Vern uh, told him he wanted him to start doing announcing stuff. He said, "I don't know nothing about wrestling." He said, "Don't worry about it. get a suit and tie." That's all. <laughs> and, and and talk, you know, if you can talk that good, you can get a job, you know. But he was, uh, hey, he made, he made, uh, he made the WWL, WWE, and AWA a lot of money because he was an announcer. And people say, well, the announcer don't draw money. I beg your pardon. The announcer does draw money. It makes you draw more money because he makes everybody look a lot better than they usually are. And that's just like a match you have. You know, you're as good as the other guy in the ring. I mean, you know, you can go out with a guy that that's just a jabroni and had 10 matches, and if he listens to you and do what you want, you can make him look like a million dollars. He'll make you look like a million dollars. But if he don't, it's no good to put it on TV or anything because you're going to look like a piece of garbage, and he is too. He's going to get his ass whooped first thing. <laughs> but anyway, I shouldn't talk like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what was Gene like off camera? What was his sense of humor like? Yeah, he was he was he he liked a joke, but you know the thing off camera with Gene when you was at the TV stations and all that, you know, we doing TV like I said, we do uh, three four weeks at a time, you know, interviews for uh, you know three weeks ahead of time, all these down then uh, over in Saudi Arabia and all that stuff, places they went overseas and stuff. I mean, they had they seen all that stuff too, but Gene never had time to stop. <laughs> And when he got there, he started interviewing, and he went one after the other. Is one, another one, it shut off. Another one, shut off. Another one, shut. I mean, he never had time to just sit down and just talk with you, laugh, carry on, have a good time. You know, time he got there, the time he left, he was on TV on interviews and stuff. I mean, it's hard to comprehend he do that much, but he did. I mean, you know, he'd do probably twenty five, thirty interviews a night with different wrestlers and stuff. 
And, uh, you know, we may, we may do one for, uh, say, Minnesota, and then we turn around and do one for L.A., and then we turn around and do one for uh, Canada up, up there, wherever we worked out, I forget that name. But anyway, you know, each one, each one. Uh, yeah, Hogan, you got to do one for this. Okay, after Hogan, David, you got to do one for this. And you just kept going. Gene didn't have time to put down the mic. Uh, he'd have time to get a cup of coffee, have time to go to the bathroom break or something. But, you know, far he just sat around, carry on. Like the guys did, you know, we had plenty of time between interviews sometime. They'd have to do, you know, three or four sets. So you knew you wouldn't come back up there for another 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But Gene was always working. I mean, when I was around, he was always working. Always, always doing interviews, uh, cutting promos about something, some town. Sometime he'd go out there, he'd be by himself talking about a town, doing an interview for it, you know. It's just amazing that he his work ethic was so. Even when he rode with me, me and Hogan and uh, and him, we went to Allentown, Pennsylvania one time. Rode up there, and he didn't have much to say. You know, Hogan running his mouth, so he didn't have much, he didn't get to say too much. <laughs> but uh, that's when we was all good buddies and everything, and uh, you know, just got up to New York, and we had to go to Allentown TV, and uh, we got off plane and left New York, and we all rode together to get there, you know. But, uh, no, we, he's going to be missed, man. He's going to be missed big time in the wrestling uh, profession. I'm sure his family, of course, they're going to miss him. And, uh, I mean, you know, he's just a nice guy. Uh, I mean, ever since I knew him, hey, never heard him say a bad thing about anybody. That's what I'm talking about. But uh, he is going to be missed. Monday, June the 4th. Come on in, Dr. David Schultz, if you would, please. Notwithstanding the big match between the Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter, you've got a crack at the former Marine prior to that out at the Cape Cod Coliseum. You know, I'd give anything in the world to get my hands on him before the Sheik got his hands on him. You're going to do it. Because after the Sheik gets his hands on you, boy, or after I get my hands on you, ain't nobody going to want you anymore. We're going to make mincemeat out of you, boy. We're going to make dog meat out of you. We're going to beat you up so bad. And you're talking about combat boots in Vietnam. i never seen a soldier in my life while I was in Vietnam wear steel-toed combat boots, you idiot. It rains a lot there. You're a goof. You ain't got everything upstairs. But Cape Cod, wherever that is, oh. I'll get there. You know, I've got a good friend. I'll friend of mine that lives out there. I don't care if your whole family what? lives there. I don't Play care if your right. mama lives there. What? I don't care if your daddy and your mama lives there together. I don't care if your mama lives with another man there. I want Sergeant Slaughter there. And I don't care if you bring your mama with you, Sergeant Slaughter. I'll slap her like a dog. And I don't care if you bring your daddy. I'll beat him like a dog. Now, see, I just don't care. You know what I mean? I believe there's an now, attitude bring your problem family there, with you. Yes. I believe you've got the problem. I don't have You any. look like you got a problem. You're getting thin on the head. You're ugly. I don't like you. You got a bad, uh, what you call it, manners. You and Sarge might be kin. You both might be from Cape Cod. So just bring the whole family and line them up, because I'd like to slap about 15 or 20 of them plum silly I... after I get through with you, Sergeant Slaughter. Thank you very much, Dr. David Schultz, outspoken. You're welcome. Big day coming up at the Coliseum on Monday, June 4th. You won't want to miss it. There were many memorable Mean Gene moments in the World Wrestling Federation, from his appearances on Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling to being the guy to make the announcement to the Pontiac Silverdome 
of the 93,173 number that we now know Vince McMahon came up with weeks before, WrestleMania 3. So many great moments, so many great interviews, of course, so many funny moments, including the time the sign fell down at SummerSlam 89 and Gene yelled, fuck it, or the time he yelled, put that cigarette out after Royal Rumble 1992 and Ric Flair's victory. There were so many great Gene Okerlund moments in the World Wrestling Federation. I wanted to speak to someone who he interviewed many, many times there, and that is the Honky Tonk Man. Let's go to this conversation right now. I am very happy now to spend a few minutes with the greatest intercontinental champion of all time, none other than the Honky Tonk Man, and we're going to talk about Mean Gene Okerlund. Honky Tonk Man, thank you for being here today. Well, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, uh, it's too bad it's a, kind of a sad occasion uh, with uh, Mean Gene's passing and everything, but, uh, you know, if I can shed some, uh, some uh, lighthearted spirit, then that's what I'd like to do. Well, that's what we'd like to do, too. We're having a good time talking about Gene and his life and his career. Let's go back to the beginning. When did you first meet him? When you first got to the World Wrestling Federation, what was that like when you first met him? Uh, it was, you know, it was exciting. It was fun. Uh, mean Gene was uh, uh, always one of these approachable guys and very, very nice, especially the young guys coming in, especially somebody that, that, that I didn't know him. I knew of him and had, had seen and heard his work and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, it was an honor and a pleasure just to uh, be around him. Before you got there, obviously, you had many guys stand next to you with a microphone, from Ed Whalen to Lance Russell. What made Gene special? What made Gene stand out? He was a great pitch-and-catch guy, whereas, you know, if, if if you pitch something, he was a good catch, or if he pitched something to you, he could he – could, he was very good at it, and, and uh, uh, he never stumbled at all, no matter what. If, if he could lead an interview, or if someone was having trouble on an interview – he could lead that person right down the path that they needed to go, uh, which is a, a tremendous asset it, it sometimes in, when you're doing live interviews and things where you you can't stop and, and do them over again. And, and, and he was a one-take artist. He, he never messed up. Gene was always on the ball. And I tell you, there was no, I, I've, I've said it over and over, and I'm on record saying it. He was the best pitch man as far as selling a product, selling us, and selling our show or our event better than anyone. And I, and, you know, I'm including, uh, Charlie Platt from, uh, Pensacola and Mobile. And, and of course, uh, Ed Whalen up in Calgary and, and Lance Russell and, 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 uh, uh, Kenny Resnick was, they, they were all good, but no one, no one could do what Gene did. What is it like when you stand next to someone and you're cutting a promo and they aren't able to do that. They aren't able to go back and forth with you and keep up with you. And, you know, they're just frozen. Well, uh, when when I started in the business, I, I was told very early, be careful with the guy interviewing you. Uh, and and if if you know the thing is, take over take over the interview. You're the talent. You know what you have to do. You know what you have to sell. Don't give them an opportunity to ambush it, to hijack it, or or to to make it worse or or anything than what it should be. So I, we were we were the guys, us older guys. If you watch some of our stuff, you know when when Gene would pitch, we would just go and and we would run with it, and and that's how I was taught to do it. But with Gene, you could give him the opening to say something, and then you could run again with it. So to carry a two minute forty eight second interview, which is almost three minutes, and, and to do it without any interruption, that's a that's a great quality and a talent. And for a guy to be standing beside you with a microphone and, and 
grab you right in the midst of that and 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 lead you on is a real asset. But by the same token, a guy that would jump in, take over the interview, they would talk for a minute, a minute and a half, and then you had nothing to say. It was like, why was I here? You know, this guy just did the whole interview for me. Uh, I remember working with Nick Goulas back in Nashville many, many years ago, and Nick would take over the interview. He would he would say, "Now you you got you guys tell them what you're going to do to him Saturday night in in, in Nashville. Tell them how how you're going to beat up Jackie Fargo. You're going to put the boots to him. And <laughs> tell, tell us what you're going to do to Jerry Lawler." And it was like, "Well, Nick, you just said it all. What what are we going to say?" <laughs> but that's that's the difference in 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 those guys and and some of the younger uh, fellows that were trying to break in the business. As, as interviewers, uh, you had to be careful and not let them step on you or, or anything. And Gene never, you know, uh, in, in radio and TV, when you talk over someone or you, st- you you jump in when they're still talking, that's called stepping on them. And Gene was very good about not ever doing that. One of the things that really comes across when you watch those old promos is Gene's sense of humor. you have any examples of Gene's sense of humor, either on camera or off? <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> He would, I, I, there's this one thing he would do with uh, a lot of times and, and, and you can watch it. He, he would drop the microphone and catch it. And, and it was so funny because if you said something that, that he would sell what you said as, as being so extraordinary or so off base or so ridiculous, he would just drop the microphone and then catch it. And, and that kind of sent a signal to the people, to the fans watching that, Man, the, this guy, the, this talent that's talking has really said something that means Gene is it's, it's flabbergasted about. What was he like off camera when you guys were hanging out? Obviously, you know, you have to do your promos, but Gene had to do everyone's promos. So he was very busy with that. But when he did have time to hang out, what was he like? Just a, a normal guy that, that, that lo- he loved the wrestling business. He loved what he did in the business. I uh, never had a bad word to say about anyone or, or anything. And, and sometimes these interview segments that we would do, uh, they would go on and on. And, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the one thing Gene said that a lot of times was trying to work with these Hollywood people. These are Hollywood stars. And if they don't have the script to read, it was like pulling teeth. And he enjoyed working with us because us old timers and, uh, the guys that could carry those interviews, it was, a, it was fun. It was easy. And, uh, you know, we, we, life was good. Life was really good in the interview room with Gene. You had Jimmy Hart as your manager. Of course, he was in the Gentries. But Gene had been a recording artist even before Jimmy Hart. Did you ever talk about music with Gene? No, not really. Uh, he, he, he yeah. you know, he would do that thing, uh, drop the microphone. I would do the intro when he would say it. And coming in now, the honky tonk man, the intercontinental—that's the greatest intercontinental champion, me and Gene. And I, you know, and I would hit that chord on that tonk, 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 and and he would drop the microphone. And uh, sometimes he asked, "Are you ever going to learn to play that?" I said, "No, not really. I don't need to. Uh, I'm doing okay without knowing it." So, you know, uh, <laughs> I tell a funny story sometimes about uh, Sergeant Rene Goulet, who was doing the interview segments. And telling us, you know, you're up next, and uh, this is Saturday night in this show, and you got Macho Man the cage match in San Francisco, or whatever the case might be, and and uh, we would go up there and do it. And of course, Gene would be standing there. One time, we it was we like nine, it was nine ninety minutes, and that was just my segments of ninety minutes of my interviews, and and I, over and over, I do that. Don't 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 don't. 
don't don't. <laughs> and we would have to, we would have to turn the 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 air conditioner off in the room. And every time, because we'd be in hotel rooms sometimes without a soundstage, just before Vince invested in sound stages. And so every time a truck would go by, a horn would blow or something, or we're near the airport, the plane would fly by, we'd have to stop the interview and redo it, stop, do it again. Finally, after about, I did almost 90 minutes, Sarge, you know, with his hair all frizzled out and everything. <laughs> this is Sarge Rene Goulet now. We called him Sarge before Slaughter. But uh, Sarge, he, he said, and, and, and uh, you know, I won't say the language, but he, he, he went, GD, can't you learn another effing song? <laughs> it was, he, he, he cracked over the fact that I did that. And Gene and I, we just, we laughed and laughed. We actually did the interview about the song and all that. And, you know, just for a special person out there, very close personal friend, Gene would say, would you play that song again? <laughs> you have been around so many people throughout your career. When you stop and you look back on Gene, how do you think he should be remembered? What do you think his legacy is? The great, he was the, there's, I mean, he stands alone. He, he, his, his shoes will never be filled. I, I haven't seen anyone in the last 20, 30 years that, that he, that come close to what he did and how he did it. And, and he was still doing it up until he passed away. Uh, I, I saw Gene, I guess it was uh, eight or nine months ago, maybe back in the early spring, I saw him at an autograph signing and he didn't, he didn't look well, but he still was doing what he did, you know, and, Hey, honky tonk man, where's Peggy Sue? Have you found her at the truck stop lately? And you just, he would, you know, just this kind of stuff that we would talk about uh, on the interviews and things. And, uh, I mean, it's like I said, he casts a huge shadow. It's going to be hard to replace him. You know, uh, Jim Ross is right up there with, with Gene, but Jim didn't do the, the interview segments with, with us like, like Gene did. And, and, uh, I think his legacy will be just, if you know what, if he wasn't in the wrestling business and he was doing radio and TV commercials, especially I think in television, if he was one of those uh, pitchmen for one of those products, you know, like the MyPillow.com and and those things, he would have he would ex- excelled at that the same as he did in wrestling. All right, a couple of the big titles off tonight in Madison Square Garden. Even now, at the eleventh hour, as we talk. Plenty of great seats available for the eight o'clock start tonight. Jimmy Hart, come on in. Hart Foundation to meet the British Bulldogs. Plus. The Intercontinental Champion of the World, the Hockey Talk Man, is going to have to face the music. No pun in- intended, gentlemen. You're going to be facing Ricky the Dragon Steamboat tonight, Honky Tonk. Let me give him just a little bit, a little warm-up. Play it, baby. That's what they're going to hear tonight. That's what Ricky the Dragon Steamboat's going to hear. I'm glad, I'm glad Ricky the Dragon decided to come out of hiding. I'm glad that that little dragon's out of the oven for the Honky Tonk Man to see. Because the first thing the little dragon's going to see, he's going to see his daddy getting beat right in the middle of the ring in Madison Square Garden. The biggest mecca of wrestling in the world. Madison Square Garden. That's where the Honky Tonk Man likes to strut and stroll. And tonight, you know, Saturday night, that's the Honky Tonk Man's night out. Your kind of night. That's my kind of night. Hey, Midtown Manhattan's my kind of place. They got all kind of freaks walking the street down in the honky-tonk man blends right in with them. You see, I look like one of them because I am what they're my people walking around there. They know what it's all about. They know what a fight's all about. See, when the honky-tonk man's looking for a fight in Manhattan, I think I can find one, but I won't find one with Ricky the Dragon. Talk to me, What, do you consider yourself a goofball? Is that what you're saying? I never said that. What? Hey, just talk about the Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship for the world tonight at Madison Square Garden. You watch the dragon go down, and he'll see his daddy crying. Find out. MSG tonight at 8. Don't miss it.
Mean Gene Okerlund would become synonymous with the World Wrestling Federation, but in 1993, he left for WCW. Of course, this definitely had a big impact on WWF television, where none of the people they tried to get to replace Gene really stuck. And of course, no one could fill those shoes that Gene Okerlund had filled in the World Wrestling Federation. He would go to WCW. It was something, as David Bixenspan recently wrote about in his Deadspin column, that was built up on commercials on Turner Broadcasting for weeks. And then, of course, he made his debut on WCW television, and in typical WCW fashion, they pretended it was a big surprise, and they didn't know he was going to be there. He would have so many great moments in WCW. The moment where Hulk Hogan turns heel probably wouldn't have had as much impact if it wasn't Gene in there interviewing him. Gene, who had this long history with Hulk Hogan, who had been there with him in the AWA, he had been there for the birth of Hulkamania, he was there in the World Wrestling Federation, always chummy, always getting along, whenever you would see Gene playing either Tutti Frutti or Rock and Roll Hoochie who is his bass player? Hulk Hogan. Well, he's in that ring when Hulk Hogan turns heel, and the garbage is flying around, and he has that memorable line, look at all this crap in the ring! And then Hogan, great ad-lib, says that all the crap represents the fans. Gene had many great moments in WCW, but one of the things that you've heard talked about here today, whether it was with David Schultz or the Honky Talk Man, was Gene's ability to get someone through an interview and make it look really smooth. Well, one person who hadn't done many interviews in wrestling was Scott Dickinson, longtime referee and, of course, a referee in WCW. He did one interview on TV after his heel turn, and that interview was with Gene Okerlund, and he had gotten to know Gene behind the scenes before that point. Let's spend a few minutes now with longtime referee Scott Dickinson. Excuse me. Excuse me. What in the world are you thinking? Me, Gene, the first thing you need to do is to tell these people to shut up if you want to hear what I got to say. I have been with you for so many years, for you to join up with the likes of these two men absolutely makes me sick to my stomach. And I think that these people here and a lot of other people around the world have had just about enough of this man, this man, and you want to put yourself in this group, you've got to be kidding me. Well, the first thing you got to realize, brother, is this right here is the future of wrestling. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother. These two men right here came from a great big organization up north, and everybody was wondering who the third man was. Well, who knows more about that organization than me, brother? I've been there, I've done that. You have made the wrong decision, in my opinion. Well, let me tell you something. I made that organization a monster. I made people rich up there. I made the people that ran that organization rich up there, brother. And when it all came to pass, the name Hulk Hogan, the man Hulk Hogan, got bigger than the whole organization, brother. And then, billionaire Ted, amigo, he wanted to talk turkey with Hulk Hogan. Well, billionaire Ted promised me movies, brother. Billionaire Ted promised me millions of dollars. And billionaire Ted promised me world caliber matches. 
And as far as billionaire Ted goes, Eric Bischoff and the whole WCW goes, I'm bored, brother. That's why these two guys here, the so-called outsiders, these are the men I want as my friends. They're the new blood of professional wrestling, brother. And not only are we gonna take over the whole wrestling business with Hulk Hogan and the new blood, the monsters with me, we will destroy everything in our path, Mean Gene. Look at all of this crap in this ring. This is what's in the future for you if you wanna hang around the likes of this bad hall and this bad net. As far as I'm concerned, all this crap in the ring represents these fans out here. For two years, brother, for two years, I held my head high. I did everything for the charities. I did everything for the kids. And the reception I got when I came out here, you fans can stick it, brother. Because if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, you people wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff would be still selling meat from a truck in Minneapolis. And if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, all these Johnny-come-latelys that you see out here, wrestling wouldn't be here. I was selling out the world, brother, while they were bumming gas to put in their car to get to high school. So the way it is now, brother, with Hulk Hogan and the new world organization of wrestling, brother, me and the new blood by my side, what you gonna do when the new world organization runs wild on you? What you gonna do? What are you hey, gonna don't do? Touch me. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today as we continue our look at Mean Gene Okerlund, a longtime friend of the show, referee Scott Dickinson. Scott, thanks for being here today. Oh, wonderful to be here. I want to talk to you about Mean Gene. Obviously, you guys were both in WCW at the same time, and I want to talk about that one interview you did with him on WCW TV. But before we get there, you are a longtime wrestling fan. Do you remember when you first saw Mean Gene? Yeah, I just, I never heard of him until he went into the WWF. I guess I wasn't smart as I thought I was. I didn't know who he was, but totally impressed with him from the get-go. I, he was a pretty underrated play-by-play guy. I know they didn't use him much in that role there or any, well, anywhere after that, but uh, I thought he was really good at it. And in terms of the local promos, obviously you growing up in New England, you were used to seeing Vince McMahon on TV doing the local promos. It was a big switch when all of a sudden Gene Okerlund did it. He had much more personality in that role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. He just, he was just so good at that. Yeah. So, of course, we've talked to you previously on the show about your career as a referee, how you got going, how you got into WCW. You're in WCW. How do you first meet Gene? Well, I used to, Brian Hildebrand and I used to hang out a lot with Mike Tanay and basically the announcers, Heenan, because, you know, Heenan would crack you up all the time. And so Gene would be in and out of the, he was kind of among the boys, but he would come into the announcers room, obviously, because that's where stuff would be. But, uh, you know, we get to know him that way a little bit and always just really friendly and uh, just just like he is on TV, little, little down, you know, down a little bit, but you know, pretty much the same guy. What was the relationship like from what you saw between Gene and Bobby Heenan? Oh, they were like brothers, best friends. Um, 
I think next, probably next to Monsoon, Heenan loved Gene. And one time I was on a, one of those air, airport shuttle trains with he, uh, Bobby, Mike, Tanay, and Gene. We were, we were taking the train back, and basically Gene gets off first, and Bobby's still on the train. He yells, hey, Gene, really loud. Hey, Gene, fuck you. You know, just, just <laughs> in the middle of an airport, you know. And I think when I get off, he called me a mark. But anyway, you know, that was okay. <laughs> Give me some examples of Gene's sense of humor. So we've heard a lot about that today here on the show, and various people have talked about it, obviously, in the past. Was he a funny guy? Did you find him making jokes all the time? Not like Heenan, not to that extent, but here and there. And actually, he was very, um, he could talk to people very well. He, I don't know how to say it, but he, he could talk to everybody in the, in the right way. Uh, he, knew how to, he knew how to talk to people, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in, in any fashion, um, whether it be, obviously, the promos or in, in real life with the production staff. He knew how to handle him. He just, he was a pro. Now you, from the best of my knowledge, didn't do many interviews during your career as a referee. In fact, I can only think of one. Did you do others other than this one interview I'm thinking of? Uh, never live, except that one. But uh, I did a couple like pre-taped ones, which we could redo, you know, think for Savoldi, maybe back in the day, but maybe one or two tops. So how nervous are you when you find out you're going to do a interview on live TV? Yeah, I didn't. Well, I had done a heel turn the week before. With Perry Sat on Perry Saturn with Jericho, and um, so the next week basically announced I was suspended. The next, I'm sorry, there was two weeks before. No, well, a week before, I guess the next night they decided they were suspending me for 30 days. And of course, I'm thinking, oh wow, I'm going to be off. So I said, no, no, you're still coming. I'm like, okay. So didn't think much of it. It was in Dallas. I remember the interview. I, I showed up and I saw the board with all the matches, and I see interview, whatever Scott Dickinson. I'm like, oh great, but um. Basically, they wanted me to be a postal worker, which I was, and they wanted to play off that is why I got suspended and went postal, basically, what they wanted to say. Literally. And they had, yeah, exactly. And uh, which, fortunately, probably for me, I dropped it, I mentioned it to my boss, and he's like, uh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. So I, I, <laughs> lis I listened, and I, they, had, they had wanted me to bring my postal stuff, and I, I didn't for that reason. And so they sent some some uh, somebody, one of the some people, production staff, out to buy basically the blandest shirt and hat you could find. So they had me wear that, and I'm like, fine, I'll wear that. It's not saying I'm a postal worker or anything. And so I ended up having a meeting with Eric to basically discuss what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say, and all that. And you know, he understood why I couldn't do the postal. In fact, he made a joke. He goes, "I can match the salary, but not the benefits." And I says, "Well, if you give me, I wanted to say, if you give me enough salary, you wouldn't need the benefits." But I don't think he was going to give me two fifty a year just to do, you know. So he um, basically had me decided I was going to take it out on J.J. Dillon because he was the figurehead. And if I had the guts at the time, a couple of years earlier, I well, a year and a year or so earlier, I got sent home to lose weight for a couple of months, and. Uh, if I thought of it, I should have really just changed the script and went off on that and went off on them for sending me home and just blamed JJ instead. And that's why I did this. But I didn't, I didn't have the guts to do that. But uh, so basically, uh, and Gene, you know, I got together with Gene a little before the interview and we just kind of talked, you know, what basically what, this, what I said with Eric, you know, what we were going to say. And so we do it. And before I do it, though, I'm in catering and I'm, I'm eating something. I something like I get a, a reaction to something. My lips started swelling <laughs> so i'm on tv in fact heenan refers to me as lips letterman why letterman i don't know i know he's friendly with david letterman but I, right before the interview and i'm like oh and i didn't know that at the time of course i didn't see it till the playback but so i looked it looked ridiculous with so a fat lip basically real looked like i have a fat lip <laughs> and so gene 
He didn't go in quite the order. See, I wanted to think of it as doing it in order, and and I made the mistake of trying to remember it going in order instead of just rolling with it. That's what um, people told me after the fact, which was, you know, pointless. But Gene directed it, and he got us back where we were supposed to be, and he kind of threw a dig at me. He's like, what's the matter with you? A little stress around the holidays? Kind of obviously a postal reference, but, you know, without saying it outright. So kind of shook me a little bit. Kind of, I almost laughed. But anyway, it, went, it was okay. I, I watched it back a couple, not too long ago, and it, I thought it was worse than it was. It came out, it didn't look too bad when I saw it again. So I guess, uh, I guess you're only worst critic, I guess. But basically, I was supposed to be nuts. So it kind of worked that I was disheveled about it anyway. We've heard from a few people on this show who are great promos. Dr. D. David Schultz, the Honky Tonk Man. No disrespect to you, but obviously not in that caliber of promo ability as those two guys. <laughs> so they've talked about the idea that when they did promos, Gene was the perfect guy next to them. That Gene could pick you up, he could follow along, he can go back and forth, he could play with you, and still get everything across that he needed to get across. You are that example, a guy who never did live promos, out there, nervous, swollen lips, obviously. <laughs> A lot going on. You have an order of events that you want to get things across in, but it goes in a different order. So talk a little bit about that. In that moment, how good was Gene? How responsible was Gene for getting you through that promo? Well, I think I pretty much almost ignored what he was asking me <laughs> and just gave my, <laughs> my preset answers that I was going to say, which, which again added to the, I think DDP said to me that uh, it added to the fact that you're crazy because you didn't, you know, you weren't even answering what he was asking you. <laughs> But Gene, but Gene kept it, you know, he kept it going and, uh, you know, we got the point across and, uh, the whole thing at the end, as I stormed off at the end, for whatever reason, they told me to do that. And that was that, uh, they didn't do another interview. So I don't think they were too impressed, but (laughs) from what you know, and what you saw there, obviously a lot of the time you were in the ring, but when you weren't, you were in the back. Did Gene usually prep for interviews with guys the same way he did with you? Or was it specific to you because you hadn't done a promo before on live TV? I think it depended on the talent, whoever it was. If they, if he knew they weren't experienced, he probably did. I mean, I, I can't remember a certain instance, but I'm sure, like with the big stuff, I'm sure they definitely told him, you know, where they were going with it. You know, Bischoff and Hogan, that stuff. I'm sure, I'm sure the major, at least the major angles they went through with it. I'm, I'm quite sure of that. Yeah. What did you see there in terms of the camaraderie? Was Gene popular amongst the boys? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't remember anyone disliking him at all. He seemed, he's like, he was, he seemed like one of the boys, as I say. You know, just a regular guy and. Decent, you know, nice to everybody. Good. Uh, in fact, I get to, my dad came out to uh, Vegas with us. In fact, it was the weekend of the Mike Tyson, uh, Vander Holyfield uh, ear biting incident. In fact, I remember we were there the Monday after that, the same arena. In fact, when I got out of the cab, they were saying, uh, don't go to the MGM. There's a riot going on right now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Um, but anyway, my dad went to the show because he loved Vegas and he, he came out with me. And after the Nitro, we went to the Wherever the, I guess the, everyone was going, it's this one place, the MGM. I don't remember the name of it, but I purposely brought my dad in to meet two people, Ric Flair and Mean Gene. Flair was kind of, eh, you know, not too interested. Flair, yeah. Yeah, but Gene kind of <laughs> saved the day. He came over and he introduced himself. And of course, he made a joke to my dad. He goes, oh, refereeing was kind of suspect out there, but uh, <laughs> nodding at me, of course, you know. And then uh, another time, my brother met me out in San Francisco. Actually, we, well, we were in Sacramento at the time, but that, that was a pay-per-view weekend. And we were in Sacramento that Monday, and um, I brought him into the catering, which I didn't do too often, but I, he was a, I got a pass for him and all that, which was pretty rare. But anyway, he was real nice to him. And my brother at the time lived in Connecticut, so he told Gene that. Of course, Gene says, Connecticut's a pit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> which I, and my brother was thinking he said that because of WWF. I'm just thinking if he said Missouri, he would have said Missouri's a pit. But, you know, just Gene being Gene. 
Scott, you're someone who saw Gene Okerlund as a fan and then got to work with him when you were in the business. How do you think he should be remembered? What's his legacy? I would say he and Lance Russell were definitely the two best interviewers as far as getting, especially with Lance was very similar, that he'd, he'd get you steered in the right direction. So I think those two, in my mind, are the best interviewers of all time. And I, like I said, I think he was underrated at play-by-play, but you can't do everything, obviously. He's definitely with best at interviews. And he didn't disappoint. You know how you say, you know, you know want to meet your heroes type of thing. He's one of those guys that did not disappoint. And I don't think that's Scott Dickinson in the front row. I Who's think that's that? Dave. That's Lip Sweaterman. Let's go to Gene Okerlund. Well, we're going to find out who it is. Uh, I couldn't help but notice on camera the presence of this man, a referee suspended by the great J.J. Dillon when he was reinstated by Ric Flair. One of the very first things that Mr. James Dillon did was to, excuse me, that young man, suspend Scott Dickinson for 30 days. Some rough officiating, I guess, kind of the general feeling about it. But officials have been under scrutiny this year in basketball, in baseball, in football. And uh, you didn't duck the bullet in this particular case, Scott. No, I, I, what, is it okay to me to be here? I have a ticket. I can be here. I'm, I'm just kind of curious. What are you doing here? I know you had a busy holiday season, maybe too much stress. You don't look good. Hey, J.J. Dillon, that was a bogus suspension. i got to tell you, that was bogus. I had no due process. I had no appeal. What is the problem with J.J. Dillon? It was a double standard here in World Championship. Wait a minute. This is not a court of law, Mr. Dickinson. This is World Championship Wrestling. And people like Flair and Dillon are going to call the shots on you referees. Dillon just wants to get over with Ric Flair and all the wrestlers. A wrestler does something to a referee, nothing ever happens. Don't you usually wear glasses? When a referee does something to a wrestler, 30 days just like that. 30 days of money out of my pocket. All right, 30 days uh, pay, but uh, justly deserved in, in the eyes of Mr. Dillon. Well, he's wrong. That was a bogus suspension. I don't know if it was a bogus suspension, but I'll tell you what. Some of the things that have been done to referees like Scott Steiner breaking the leg of Nick Patrick. I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to look into it. I'll talk to Dylan. I'll talk to Flair. There he goes. Apparently, apparently something has snapped on this guy. He's just not right. Tony, back to you. After WCW would close down, Gene would eventually end up back with the World Wrestling Federation, making his return at WrestleMania 17 with Bobby Heenan to commentate over the gimmick battle royal and later hosting many of their programs focused on classic wrestling. And when it comes to classic wrestling, there's a company right now out there called Classic Wrestling. It is run by Polish Joe Chupik and Todd Okerlund, Mean Gene's son. And of course, Gene would make several appearances on their pay-per-view events after he left WCW. And it was during this period of time where Polish Joe Chupik, a great friend of the show, got to know Gene a little bit. Let's go to this conversation I had with Polish Joe Chupik. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event. The highlight of every wrestling card is the main event. It's the match that every fan waits for and every wrestler strives to wrestle in. Hi again, classic fans. I'm Mean Gene Okerlund, back for another look at professional wrestling history. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast as we continue our look at the life and career of Mean Gene Okerlund one of the most popular guests in 605 Super Podcast show history, that, of course, being Polish Joe Chupik. Polish Joe, thank you for being here today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks uh, for asking me on for this special tribute. You know, there's so much to say and so much to talk about when it comes to Gene Okerlund. And, of course, I want to talk to you about 
your personal experiences around him. You got to work with him. You, of course, are partners with his son, Todd Okerlund. But I want to take a step back first. What are your earliest memories of Mean Gene in Minnesota watching wrestling on TV? Well, I grew up watching the AWA. Uh, I was born in 65. So Marty O'Neill was the, um, the, the interviewer back in the day. And uh, Gene had started with the AWA. I think I had read it was like 70 or, or 71. And um, Gene started slowly phasing in to uh, take over for Marty O'Neill. And, and as, a, as a little kid, I didn't really think much of it, but I knew that it was different. Um, loved Marty O'Neill because he was a, a guy that lived uh, near where I grew up. But seeing me and Gene on there, it I remember it not taking very long to really like this little balding guy um, doing interviews with my childhood heroes. And then as as I got older and, and got to appreciate things a little bit more, uh, Gene grew in the job. And it was just fun to watch him right up through the beginning of Hulkamania with the AWA. Um, would have been late 80, early 81. And I, I, I mean, it just, it was, it was a treat and a joy to watch him uh, perform. I was heartbroken when he went to the WWE, uh, more so just because he was leaving the AWA. But fortunately, I was still able to watch Gene uh, do his magic behind the mic, um, doing the WWF at the time, uh, doing his shtick there. So that was great. Um, later on, you know, gosh, that would have been 1999, then if we fast forward. Classic Wrestling started, did a series of AWA pay-per-views. Gene was under contract with WCW at the time. And it wasn't until, let's see, we did 24 shows. It was a show 16 when Todd said that Gene was available to do our show. And I don't mark out for many in the business. Um, I have. Um, and, you know, I, I guess at some point uh, I, I might again. But for Gene, I truly did. The, the the first time I talked to him by telephone, uh, I, I, I was sort of awestruck, but I still had a job to do and talked with him about the shows that we've got coming up. And he was phenomenal, pleasant, um, and, and golden-throated. I didn't want to talk. I wanted to listen to what Mean Gene said just because it sounded so damn good, even on the telephone. Uh, and then a while later, uh, Classic Wrestling had gotten an agreement to do pay-per-views, uh, three pay-per-views on on demand. So we went from just doing satellite and now doing on demand. And so we had the big gun. We had Mean Gene Okerlund hosting our show. So we scheduled a shoot down in Florida. And uh, that was the first time I met Gene and walked into uh, the, the, the studio. Um, he was already there. Vern was already there. And went up and introduced myself and shakes my hand, this little guy. I mean, Gene, Gene was not big, which worked great for his position. Um, puts out his hand and, and uh, I go, hi, Gino, Polish Joe. And he puts out his hand, shakes my hand. And he goes, young man, fine work. Keep up the fine work. 
I didn't know if he meant that or not, but you know what? The first time I meet him and he shakes my hand and he says that, I'll take it. And I enjoyed every minute of it as I did working through that entire shoot. Consummate pro, an absolute consummate pro to work with. I've heard a lot said about his sense of humor. You have any examples of his sense of humor? Uh, you know, I, I, I can't mention, I, I, not that I can't mention, I can't remember anything specific, but it was just, that that was Gene. It, that wasn't an act. He would throw little zingers in here and there, throwing ribs at Vern uh, when, when the two of them are sitting in the ring getting ready to uh, to do an interview. Of course, Vern would throw it back, but it, 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 Gene was just a fun guy. I would have loved to have had the opportunity in his younger days to sit in a bar with him and and uh, have a few beers or vodkas and uh, and, not, and listen to him, but also be on the receiving end of his insane humor. You've worked with a lot of people. You've been involved with television production for so many years. Talk about Gene from that angle. Was he easy to work with? Was he easy to direct? What was he like to have in front of the camera when you're producing? He makes a producer, he, he makes a production crew's job easy. You, you, you give him the script. doesn't need to do it verbatim. Give him an outline of things, and Gene will thread it all together, deliver uh, a spot-on sell of what, whatever you gave him and would work the countdown to, you know, you're doing a, a, a 30 second spot and start counting down at five and you're sitting there going, what the heck? How he's never going to finish. You keep shaking it down three, two, one, and Gino is done. Well, it, much like Larry Nelson, you know, he, he was another one I had meant, you know, when we had talked about Larry, they both could deliver. But with all due respect to Larry, he was no mean Gene Okerlund, and uh, don't think any anyone will ever be able to be another mean Gene Okerlund. You know, you started with the AWA two years, give or take, after Gene Okerlund left for the World Wrestling Federation. And I've heard people say that losing Hogan was a major hit, but losing Gene Okerlund may have been just as big a hit because he was so recognizable and so loved by those fans. What do you think? I mean, you were there after the fact you know, whatever you heard in the office there. But from what you observed, how impactful was losing Gene Okerlund to the AWA? It was as impactful as losing Hulk Hogan. And, and from a wrestling perspective and the way that things were at the time, it was the sick man who sold. He directed the interviews. The interviews are what sold tickets to the live events. And Gene was able to do that with expertise and precision and comedy all rolled into one. And when he uh, left, that was a big hit, <laughs> a big hit to the AWA. Um, you know, you mix in Hogan, Bobby Heenan, and uh, Jesse Ventura. I believe those were the four who, um, the, the first four who uh, left for the WWF. Um, yeah, it, it was a big killer. But losing your, your, your pitch man, essentially, losing your top sales guy, um, losing the recognizable, unmistakable voice and everything that went along with him, there's no doubt that, that it hurt. And, and Gene's uh, name would be brought up in the same breath as Hulk Hogan. 
from what you observed, what was his relationship like with Vern Gagne? They seemed to have an absolute good relationship. Vern never said a bad word about Gene. Outside of, I mean, you know, when, you, when you're talking business, you know, Vern would be, God, that goddamn Oakland, you know, why do you have to leave? <laughs> yeah. um, upset at the situation, but not at the man. You know, Vern, Vern did take some of the, the guys leaving personally. That's a whole nother story. But he, you know, neither he nor, nor Greg ever said a really bad word about mean Gene, the, the person. Um, they just shared their disappointment that they didn't have him anymore. To those of us who have only seen Gene on camera for so many years, what was he like away from the camera? What was he like behind the scenes? What was he like when there was not a production happening and he was just being himself and away from the cameras? Uh, the best way I can explain it is Gene was always on camera. Gene was always in production. What you saw on camera with Gene is what I experienced off camera with Gene. Um, it, it, no change, no change. That, that wasn't a shtick. That wasn't a persona. That wasn't a gimmick. What you saw on camera was the true mean Gene Okerlund. Do you have any favorite stories or personal memories of your time around Gene? Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I only had the one live opportunity to work with them down on that floor to shoot. But I, you know what? I do have one. About three, four years ago, I'm driving uh, to a long-distance soccer game or a long-distance to a soccer game for my uh, one of my daughters. And shortly into the drive, I got a call from Gene Okerlund. It was about 5.30, 6 o'clock, so uh, at an hour for being on the East Coast. And I'm, I, I looked at the phone and I go, what the hell is Gene calling me for? We didn't have any projects, hadn't talked to him in probably a couple of years. I answered the phone. I go, Gino, what the hell's happening? Great to hear from you. And for whatever reason, he didn't have a reason. He just, he just called me to talk. We talked classic wrestling. We talked Todd Okerlund. We talked Vern Gagne. We talked the AWA. Conversation went on and went on. And, and I'm just sitting here sort of thinking, okay, there's got to be something that's going to, the other shoe's got to drop here. Conversation kept going and this other shoe never dropped for 45 minutes, approximately. I had a friendly conversation with the one and only mean Gene Oakland, and his last words to me were very similar to the first words to me when we met. He goes, you're doing a great job, young man. Keep up the great work. And I said, thank you, Gene. You know, hope to work with you again soon. And that was the last time I talked to him. We texted a couple of times after that, but, you know, nothing salacious, nothing, um, you know, no humor to it. It was just, quite honestly, my, my fondest memory of Mean Gene Okerlund, just talking to him. He wasn't Mean Gene. It was just talking to Gene Okerlund. And that goes back to what I said earlier. What you got with Gene in front of the camera was what you got off camera. And for 45 minutes, I had that pleasure. What do you think is the legacy that Gene Okerlund leaves behind, not just to professional wrestling, but specifically in Minnesota? 
Oh, without a doubt, uh, being the, the, the sound and the character of the AWA. Uh, it was amazing how much news coverage, uh, I mean, not only nationally, but here locally. Um, it was in the first few minutes of every local um, newscast. Um, we, you know, every uh, newspaper in the area contacted us to get Todd's um, contact info, to get the story, to get more info about Gene. I can't tell you how many of my friends texted me or called me when they had heard. It, for a second there, it almost felt like it was my, my own father that passed away. The entire day was just spent um, replying to emails, taking phone calls, replying to texts. And that in itself, I think, is the, the, the testament to the impact that Mean Gene Okerlund had on so many people, especially people my age in their early to mid-50s, that he was a part of their childhood. He, he was our real-life Mickey Mouse, if you will. And in our childhood, we were the only ones that had him. Well, I should say the territories of the AWA. Um, but he was, you know, AWA was Minneapolis at the time. And so Mean Gene was one of ours. I lived in Minnesota doing the AWA. So the legacy is such fond and special memories of watching him on the AWA uh, throughout the 1970s and early 80s. You know something, Mean Gene? Everything positive comes from the heart. And I'm all heart, Daddy, and that's the way I've been thinking. Completely positive. And you know something, Mean Gene? Sometimes you get on a roll like the Hulkster. Boy, Every are you seems, ever on one right oh, now? Oh, you better believe it. Every, everything seems to be going your way. Kind of a strange way that I happen to get into this particular business, wrestling television. It just happens that I was in the right place, and I'd have to say at the right time, some 32 years ago, replacing the late, great Marty O'Neill for a one-time only thing that turned out to be a lifetime. While he and others thought he could have gotten the job done alone, promoters forced Hulk Hogan to at least get a partner if he was going to do battle with four men. But I want to go on record right now that if he wrestles, like he wants to wrestle the whole Heenan family, you have to get yourself a partner. He would seek some assistance in a big way. Since all sphere of love war in professional wrestling, I declare war, and I'm going to bring in the heavy artillery, Daddy. I'm bringing in the heavy artillery as my oh, partner. My word. And here he is right Holy here. Cow, How heavy a... can you get? Here he is, the heavy artillery. It huh? doesn't come any heavier than Andre the Giant. I had a chance to meet the dog in this interview from the dog shop. And as always... He was unpredictable. Just, just a minute, Mad Dog Bashan. Mad Dog Bashan, I have been looking high and low for you, and what finally. What are you doing here? What told you I was here? I had to run you down, Mad Dog. Obviously, some things that we've had to talk about. You've been totally unavailable. Mad Dog, may, may I ask, what in the world are you doing back here? This is for my friend, Jerry Fatwell. This, my, this. What, what is this, Mad Dog? This is going to be special delivery. It's a pine box. 
Well, is you, you know what they use the pine bugs for? I've got a good idea. <laughs> Who told you I was there in the first place? Well, I can't get into that. Matt, Matt Dog Vashon. You know what? I've waited a long time for something like this. You know that sometimes there's something that bothers you that you, you could no longer live with it. But I've think about this for a long time. When Jerry Blackmer, Blackwell put me out of wrestling for for two and a half years and I had to work in the mines to make my body strong. I thought about this when I was pounding with a pick. And it really, I said to myself, deep down in the mines, deep down when it was dark and cool, I said, wouldn't that be a nice place for someone like oh, Blackwell? Well. That's where I had the idea of building this pine box. Taboot. Taboot, taboot. What does taboot? That's the word what in, is a, in it? Arabic for this. You know, sometime, my friends, there's something that's gonna give. This world is not big enough for both of us. This is a tent match coming up, and some of us, one of us, will have to leave this world. Remember something, Blackwell. All the money in the world that the sheik give you, I'm... you can't take it with you. He may be an apprentice carpenter, but I guarantee you he is a seasoned ring veteran. The death match, Jerry Blackwell has to meet this man. Holy cow, what in the world? My... And I hope that you too have enjoyed this presentation of yesterday's stars that have become today's legend. Devastating, athletic, entertaining. There are many adjectives that could be used to describe the wrestlers who battled in the ring during the 1980s, some of which you witnessed right here. But one adjective that truly fits is classic. For the best of the classic wrestling documentary series, I'm Gene Okerlund. As we close out this very special edition of the 605 Super Podcast, this look at the life and career of mean Gene Okerlund, it's important to stop and think about just how good Gene was. We've seen so much wrestling since Gene hasn't been on TV every week. We've seen so many people do interviews since Gene was doing the interviews every week. And it's easy to see now how good he was because no one even comes close to his level. Gene knew how to get people over. He knew how to get the points across while at the same time having fun and at times getting himself over. But Gene Okerlund is one of the most beloved characters of the 1980s and the 1990s to a national television audience, as well as in the 1970s to the audience in the Midwest. And he will certainly never be forgotten by wrestling fans throughout the world. And we here at the Super Podcast Remember his legacy and are very happy today to bring you this program looking at Mean Gene Okerlund. As we wrap things up, we want to remind you, you can follow us on Twitter at 605pod. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can follow the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash superpodcast. And for anything else, we will tell you about it on the next regular edition of the 605 Super Podcast coming at you very, very soon. But until then, for all the many guests who appeared on this week's show, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!